When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, Unshaken Saints, all you wonderful friends out there, and welcome to the finish line. We have officially made it. The last lesson of our New Testament year of study. It was 12 months ago that we went through the intertestamental period uh, and dusted off Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was a year ago that we spent time with shepherds and wise men in Bethlehem. And imagine all that we've gone through since then. We have gone through the Gospels and the Book of Acts. We have studied all the letters of Paul and his fellow apostles. We've spent two weeks on the book of Revelation and third time's the charm, or three strikes and I'm out, depending on how well I've done. Uh, but here we are in the last handful of chapters. Chapter 15 through 22 is what we'll cover today. And then the New Testament will, will be closed for a time. Uh, actually, I hope it never really closes. I hope that we continue to come back and continue to learn from its lessons. Uh, this has been an incredible year of scripture study for me, and I pray it's been that way for you. Now, these last two weeks particularly have been an absolute thrill to be able to oh, go through such rich symbolism. I actually got a, an email from one of you, an old friend I hadn't been in contact with in 25 years, give or take. And he mentioned that he was sitting there in Gospel Doctrine last Sunday and the teacher didn't make it. I don't know if they got caught up prematurely to heaven or, or what, but they, they, didn't, they didn't come. They weren't there. And they hadn't gotten a substitute, so everyone... Can you imagine this in Gospel Doctrine? I was just feeling for this poor brother. Uh, everyone's sitting there waiting for someone to come and, and lead the discussion. And when it dawned on everyone that nobody was coming, this intrepid friend of mine, based on what he'd been soaking up in our collective study of the book of Revelation, he volunteered himself. <laughs> he had the courage to go uh, to the front of the class, turn around and say, well, I'm, uh, I was expecting another teacher just as much as you were, but since they haven't come, well, I guess that leaves it to us. And he started the discussion with a prayer in his heart that the things that we'd been learning together would be brought back to his remembrance. And man, my hat's off to you. That, that's impressive. I would hope that the more time we spend in Scripture, the more ready we are to give a reason for the hope that is in us at any moment someone needs it, at the drop of a hat. In, in private conversation, uh, in, in a public setting like a gospel doctrine class, uh, I'm amazed by people who are learning to love the scriptures to the point of being able to teach them from the, the pulpit of the heart whenever they have the opportunity to do so. So hats off to you, my friend, and hats off to all of you who have been spending so much time in scripture together. Uh, I'll do the math as soon as this is done, but I think we've up, gotten about as close to last year's record of time spent in scripture uh, as we can get. And that's, and that's saying something. Uh, like I said, I'll do the math and I'll let you know, but it's amazing how many hours we have spent together. And, and that speaks more highly of you than it does of me. This is what I would do anyway. I, I just teach scripture. But for you to carve out so much time to be able to study it with me is a, an honor for me 
and again, speaks highly of the caliber of your souls wanting to, to do this. So let's dive in, shall we? We have been uh, meeting, a, we, well, we, last week we met a great red dragon. We met uh, the Grim Reaper and saw the Grapes of Wrath. We, we, we've gone through some intense things. And yet today, if all's well that ends well, then all's well. Because it, it does end incredibly well. Uh, at the end of, when all is said and done, Jesus wins. And if that becomes your two-word motto, Jesus wins, those are pretty good words to live by, okay? Now, there's some things we have to get through to get the, to that side of things. Uh, we're going to see Armageddon today, but we're also going to see the glorious fulfillment of every one of God's promises as this earth becomes the celestial kingdom of God. To have him present with us, oh yes, Jesus wins. So let's see how we get there, okay? Some play-by-play -play analysis. We're going to start in chapter 15, very short chapter, and in this one we, we get a preview of exaltation. Uh, it, maybe it's jumping the gun. In some ways you could take some of this out and put it near, closer to the end of the whole book. But to be reminded of this, again, we've been through some hard things lately. Uh, the beast in 13 and the grapes of wrath in 14. And so before we plow forward to the end, because Armageddon awaits us as well, can we just be reminded how all this ends? In some ways, if this is the coach's halftime speech, it's a, it's a good one. And we're going to be able to run out of the tunnel back onto the field, knowing that by the time the final whistle blows, Jesus wins. So stay on his team. Chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Now, we saw seven angels and seven plagues back in chapter 8 and chapter 9, so many of them reminiscent of the plagues of Egypt. And here we see them all over again. There is an, an intense amount of repetition throughout the book of Revelation because there's so much repetition in life. And, and beasts aplenty come marauding across the earth, okay? Uh, there are harvests of souls in every generation. And those that are wrestling between taking the mark of the beast or the mark of the Father in their foreheads. And so, of course, we should expect echoes of the new song as well as echoes of the dragon's words. And here we see an echo of annihilation. He goes on, I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And we've seen already that that's how section 130 of the Doctrine and Covenants describes the celestial kingdom, the earth when it is renewed and receives its paradisiacal glory, okay? A sea of glass, compare that to the sea of chaos and commotion that the ocean is usually known for. And so to finally have peace on earth, oh, no more, no more raging waves and howling winds, no, a sea of glass. It's mingled with fire. So imagine this kind of purifying, cleansing fire, this golden and glorious light this is the celestialized earth. So again, preview of coming attractions. We're going to make it. And who's there to rejoice with God as he sits upon his throne? Them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name. Remember the 666 we talked about before. They all stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. And harps can be juxtaposed against the trumpets Trumpets were announcing war. Trumpets were announcing, oh, clash and conquest and, and devastation and death. But these harps 
Oh, these are songs of praise. Let's go back to the book of Psalms and start singing once again, shall we? Yeah, we saw this, the new song in premortality, and its melodies are echoing throughout eternity. And we'll have a grand crescendo when all is said and done. And who's playing those harps? Who's singing these psalms of praise? Those who have gotten the victory. We saw back in chapter 2 and chapter 3 all these incredible temple-based blessings for those who overcome. And here, what have they overcome? Amazing list. The beast. So think about this political aspect uh, of, of the kingdom of the devil. Think about Babylon in all of its, its beastly power. Dog-eat-dog world. Survival of the fittest. Uh, man is wolf to every other man. And to see those who have gotten the victory over that, like, nope, that's not the game I'm playing. That's not how I'm going to function in life. I'm not going to gobble up other people as if they were my prey. No, I am. This is not a predatory approach to life. I think I'll follow the lamb. Thank you very much. Rather than the beasts. So I've overcome that beast. I've overcome his image. So I'm not trying to fit in with everyone else who is playing the beast's game. I don't care if that leads to ostracism and being shunned. Why aren't you playing our games? Why aren't you fitting in? Oh, I'm... That's not the game God has called us to play. Believe me, here we are. I just got out of halftime. I heard the speech again. And so I'm not interested in the image of the beast. I'm not drawn to his mark. And so to think of those who constantly have worldly cares on the mind. Oh no, I have the name of God written in my forehead. It is holiness to the Lord. The number of his name? No, I'm going for the full 777. Completeness, totality, perfection. I will not settle for 666. These are those who have overcome the world. Ready to sing? Now, these echoes of the new song, look at verse 3 and 4. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. Ah, That is a song that all the world will eventually sing. When every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is the Christ, thou only art holy. Actually, those words have been turned into a song in our day. And if, you've, if you're familiar with the music, it's, it just rolls off the mind there. Who shall not fear thee and honor thy name? Thou only art holy, thou only supreme. To realize that there is no more competition <laughs> because there's no more conflict. And everyone has come to understand that Christ alone reigns supreme. No wonder this is an echo of the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now think about those two. Uh, And so the song of Moses is also known as the song of Miriam. So there are altos and sopranos singing right alongside the tenors and basses. Don't worry. This is the full choir. And when Miriam and Moses sang that song, this is Exodus 15, right on the heels of the Egyptian armies being swallowed up in the Red Sea. Now, that's an important part of the story that we sometimes underestimate. Because think about how obstinate and stubborn Pharaoh was, where occasionally he'd come to his senses and say, fine, Moses, get out of here, take the people. But then he'd always return like a dog to its vomit and, and drag them back in again. 
And imagine the Israelites finally leaving Egypt, but always remaining worried if Egypt was going to come back after them. Their years in the wilderness, or even their time in the promised land itself, would have always been troubled by fears that the sounds of oh, mustering armies was off in the distance. And was Pharaoh going to track us down and drag us back to bondage? No, to be able to see the miracle of their deliverance. But then the miracle, I mean, it's a miracle when they see open, but it was another miracle when it crashed closed again. Because it signaled to the people of Israel, those former enemies will never come back to haunt you again. Can you imagine feeling that way about sins of addiction? about old habits that are so hard to break. Imagine the adversary being done once and for all. It's over. The world and its warfare has come to a close. No wonder the sea is glass again. The crashing waves over the chariots of Pharaoh and then nothing but permanent calm, permanent peace. If that's the song of Moses and Miriam, can you sense it as an echo of the song of the lamb? Think of those echoes of pre-mortality when the lion of the tribe of Judah prevailed to open the book with the seven seals. With that, again, it was said and done, and we could rest assured in permanent salvation. Here we are singing it again, coming out of halftime, the locker room, ready to take on the second half, because we know how things end. Jesus really does win. Now, verse 5 and 6, After that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. So this is once again revealing the throne of God. Way back in chapter 4, we saw that, where the 24 elders, the four beasts, were there before God's throne. Here we are, doors open, or in this case, veil parted, back in the presence of God in his holy house. What happens there? The seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, so seven, that number of completeness, totality. We had seven days of creation. Now we have seven plagues of destruction. But these angels are clothed in pure and white linen and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. They actually look a lot like the Lord as John saw him back in chapter 1 of Revelation. But these are destroying angels. Now remember, they're wearing white, not red. So it's not that, that, that well, remember back in chapter 14, end of the previous chapter, there's Jesus treading the winepress alone, staining all his raiment. There's destruction, trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. But here, these destroying angels wearing white, hmm, this is, this is pure judgment being passed. This is not some kind of, oh, God in his vengeful anger getting it out of his system. And we're going to see more and more reassurance to know that it goes against all that Jesus would have wanted to have to pass condemning judgment upon the wicked. He has been calling them to repentance from the beginning, crying out to them to come unto him and be cleansed. But, they, but ye would not, to borrow the language of Scripture. So note, keep an eye on that as we go through these following chapters. But go to verse 7 and 8 and notice what happens as these angels are then sent forth. One of the four beasts, remember we're here in the presence of God, so they surround the throne, covered in eyes, six wings, all their agency, all of their knowledge, worshiping God. What are they doing here? 
One of them gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. And that's important to remember. We're not getting back into God's presence until we've made it through these final trials. Oh, the path to glory doesn't go around a tribulation. It goes straight through it. And yet, if we can hold to that iron rod as it makes its way through the mists of darkness, if we can keep our feet firmly on the straight and narrow path, we know where it leads. It leads to the tree of life. So hold on to that. It's interesting because as the temple is filled with smoke from the glory of God, remember the smoke of the incense altar is meant to represent the prayers of the saints as they ascend to heaven. So it's these saints that are praying for God's avenging power because destruction of the wicked equals deliverance of the righteous. Again, think back to Pharaoh and his armies. So where, do we, where, where are we left at the end of chapter 15? Before we start marching forward towards Armageddon in 16 and the destruction of Babylon and beyond, well, we have to remember that God is calling us forward. We know the eventual victory. And so as you face difficulty, press forward with an eye focused on the joy that is waiting for you on the other side. The way Elder Neil A. Maxwell put it is absolutely breathtaking. And this was from his very first talk as an apostle. We should have seen some amazing things coming if this was his first impression. But in that initial apostolic talk, he said this, Yes, there will be wrenching polarization on this planet, but also the remarkable reunion with our colleagues in Christ from the city of Enoch. Yes, nation after nation will become a house divided, but more and more unifying houses of the Lord will grace this planet. Yes, Armageddon lies ahead. But so does Adam on Diamond. Oh, if we can get through the first, we will make it to the second. Talk about prophetic words from Elder Maxwell. And here we are living in a day of unifying houses of the Lord dotting the planet at an ever-increasing rate. Yes, we seem to be headed toward Armageddon. But hold out hope for Adam on Diamond. That's coming too. With that in mind, I think we're ready for chapter 16. And any dark days we see in the next few chapters, try to strain your ears to hear the echoes of this song. Okay? Song of Moses. Song of the the Lamb. Song of victory. It's on its way. Chapter 16, verse 1 and 2. I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. So drop the reins. Take off the emergency brake. You are ready to run forward. These destroying angels let loose upon an unwary world. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. No wonder it was so important back in chapter 15 to overcome that mark, to avoid that image This is meant to remind us or foreshadow the kind of destruction of the wicked that will occur prior to the second coming. So in some ways, we are now in the 3rd Nephi chapter 8 moment that leads very quickly to the 3rd Nephi chapter 11 moment. 3rd Nephi 11 in the Book of Mormon is when Jesus comes. 3rd Nephi 8 in the Book of Mormon is where the wicked are destroyed. 
uh, it's a, the Book of Mormon is a scale model of the last days, okay? And to see these days leading up to the coming of Christ, here we are at destruction. And this one, again, is meant to remind us of the plagues of Egypt. No wonder we're singing the song of Moses already in advance, right? So these, these vials are poured out, and the first thing that happens is, are these grievous sores upon everyone. In verse 3 and 4, the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea. So we've seen the first poured out on the earth, the second poured out on the sea. Keep reading, and we'll see it poured out on the air later on. And so all the elements, sea, earth, land, it, it's going to be covered by consequences. There's no escaping other than repentance. So he pours out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. Again, this is all reminiscent of the plagues of Egypt, and does this sound like the Nile being turned to blood? That was the second angel. The third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. So yes, we're back in Egypt, and hopefully by now we're starting to get the clue. Where will we find water if all the water's been turned to blood? Well, there's another kind of water that has been changed because of the blood of the Lamb. The only water worth drinking at this point is living water. So don't settle for anything less. In verse 5 through 7, we get a brief pause in the destruction. Wait for a moment and we'll get to the 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th angels. But here, right after the destruction of the wicked through the, through the seas, through the waters, notice the reassurance that is given to the Lord. And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord which art and wast and shalt be. So there's past, present, future. We've seen it so many times. And why this statement of God's righteousness? Of course God is righteous. Everyone knows that. But notice the way these words come. Thou art righteous, O Lord, because thou hast judged thus. For they, the victims, have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy and by worthy, it's not worthy of blessings or worthy of reward. No, it's worthy of this punishment. A better word for worthy there would be deserving. They are deserving of the kind of condemnation that they are now suffering. Next verse. I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. Now, this pause is absolutely essential. Because we are starting to really see the destruction of the wicked ramp up. And there's a part of us, I'm sure, that wonders if this is a sin against mercy on God's part. Oh, fine, you've been just. And yes, they deserved that. But where's your mercy in all of this? Well, his mercy has been there every step of the way. His mercy was sending prophets and even raising them when they'd been slain. Remember, go back to that chapter. He has been crying repentance in hopes of helping us avoid the consequences of our sins. But at some point, does final judgment have to be passed? We'll see that clearly in chapter 20. But here, these preliminary judgments, as the, as the wicked are destroyed at the end of the world, I can only imagine how the Savior must feel. In fact, I remember a student years ago, one of my first years teaching seminary, we were talking about the signs of the times and the fact that judgment will be a great and dreadful day. Uh, that the second coming will be wonderful for the righteous and devastating for the wicked. And then this wonderful, I think sophomore girl raised her hand and said, 
but don't you think for Jesus it will be both? And I sat there, one, well, what, what do you mean by that? He's on, the, he's on the good side. He's the captain of the good guys. So great day for him. We won. But in her sweet sensitivity, she reminded me of something I'd overlooked. She said, but for Jesus, he cares as much about the wicked as he does about the righteous. And seeing them suffer, won't that be a devastating day for him? A dreadful moment when he finally has to pass judgment because they wouldn't let themselves be saved? That was an eye-opener. That was a heart-softener for me. I needed that. And to think in this moment, would the Lord himself need reassurance? This is the God who weeps. Remember from Enoch's, Enoch's vision, Moses 7? This is a Lord who was, how oft would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings? But he would not. And because you won't, I can't save you. And so no wonder the destroying angels themselves, and who else did he mention? Those who were, this voice that came out of the altar. You remember the altar of sacrifice? As the sign and symbol of the fifth seal, the age of martyrdom. So you have all these martyrs, you have these saints, you have these angels who have suffered at the hands of the wicked. And they have been crying out, not for mercy, well, yes, mercy for themselves, but justice upon their persecutors. If they would have changed, we would have forgiven them too. But they haven't changed. They don't seem willing to. And so, Father, for our sake, come to our rescue. Free us from the Egyptian armies that always seem to be waiting in the wings. To me, I'm fascinated by the thought of these destroying angels reassuring God of his righteous judgment. Even to the point where they say, they have shed the blood of all these people whose voices are crying from out from underneath the altar. Okay, But because they have shed the blood of saints, thou hast given them blood to drink. Seas full of it, waters running, rivers running with it. They got exactly what they asked. That is the law of the harvest. That is reaping what they've sown. And since they shed rivers of blood, then blood is the only thing they'll have to draw out of that river for them to drink. I'm actually reminded of a haunting moment in Joseph Smith's life. Right at its close, he's there in Carthage jail, surrounded by enemies that are bent on his destruction and the death of the saints that were following him. At one point, Joseph looks at these leaders of the Carthage Grace that had come in kind of gawking and staring like, I want to see old Joe Smith, the prophet. And Joseph asked them, do I look like the kind of person that I've been described as? Does it look like I'm guilty of all those crimes that they're accusing me of? And the mobbers say, actually, no. You don't look like the devil incarnate the way you've been depicted. But then again, we can't see your heart. So maybe you just fake it well. Now, Joseph's response to that is absolutely fascinating. Because he admits, you're right, you cannot see my heart. But I can see yours. And this is what he says of those hearts. Very true, gentlemen, you cannot see what is in my heart. And you are therefore unable to judge me or my intentions. But I can see what is in your hearts. And I will tell you what I see. 
I can see you thirst for blood. And nothing but my blood will satisfy you. Does that sound like what we just saw these angels say? Because they've shed the blood of saints, that's all they'll have to drink? Is that blood? Well, Joseph went on. Inasmuch as you and the people thirst for blood, I prophesy in the name of the Lord that you shall witness scenes of blood and sorrow to your entire satisfaction. Your souls shall be perfectly satiated with blood, and many of you who are now present shall have an opportunity to face the cannon's mouth from sources you think not of. This was 1844, and less than 20 years later, these scenes of blood would be passed upon the United States of America as brother fought against brother and father against son, as north and south erupted in conflict unlike anything anyone had seen before. Casualties on a scale of death and destruction where there were rivers of blood that no one would have imagined before. This is Honest, during that time period, many of the Latter-day Saints, safe in territorial Utah, looked back and saw this as the judgments of God, the righteous judgments, because those, had, those people there had rejected the prophets and slain the saints, and thirsting for blood, that's what they were drinking. It's exactly what's described here in these verses. Okay, and, and again, it's all in terms of reassuring the Lord. Your justice is not unmerciful. You have given them every opportunity. So true and righteous are thy judgments, O Lord God. You are worthy in all the right ways, because they are deserving of this judgment in all the wrong ones. From there we see the fourth angel. And in verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun. We've seen destruction on sea and land. Now let's turn to the heavenly bodies. Remember one of the signs of the times was that the sun would be darkened. Well, here it's intensified before that happens. The sun, the, the destroying vial is poured out upon the sun. And power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues. And yet, notice the last phrase, which is so devastating. They repented not to give him glory. All of these things, this was redemptive turbulence, at least it could have been, if they would have come to their senses and realized where they would, were headed. Again, this is exactly like Pharaoh, who kept being shown what awaits, and yet consistently refused to repent. Is the same thing happening here. If you think back to the parable of the sower, it was on stony ground that plants didn't have enough depth of root to get to the water table. And thus, when the sun began to beat down upon them, they withered and died. Sunlight is supposed to be helpful. It helps us grow. And this kind of chaos can help us grow spiritually if we'll turn to the Lord, the source of living water. Without it, however, that sun will, will burn us with scorching heat and we'll end up shaking our fist heavenward, blaspheming the source of punishment that was meant to be the source of our protection. 
In verse 10 and 11, the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast. Uh, we're getting up close and personal with the enemy. This is the epicenter of destruction. It's where evil emerged, and so we are going to take it right to this target. It's poured out upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues for pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And yet again, they repented not of their deeds. There they are, just like the beast before them, stubbornly unwilling to change. Verse 12 to 14, then the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Now, the Euphrates is basically the eastern border of the, the Middle East. And yet the thought of that river, it, the river is a border. It's also a barrier. It's hard for armies to cross rivers, right? And so to be protected somewhat by the river Euphrates. And yet here it's now dried up. Why? So that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. They can come marching across the dry riverbank. This is like Joshua coming into the promised land as the, as the Jordan River is stopped. But this isn't Joshua coming in to conquer the promised land. These are the enemies coming in to destroy the seat of the beast. There's nothing holding back the destruction of the wicked at this point. Notice the next verse. I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. That battle will be named in just a moment. But to see what is gathering them, what's drawing people ever closer to this violent end? Well, it's these frogs that are coming out of the mouths of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. Those three, oh, it's almost a, a trinity of sorts. And as they collectively come together to breathe forth falsehood. Can, can you picture this? Again, the, the symbolism of Revelation is absolutely breathtaking. And to picture dragons and beasts and, and, and false prophets spewing forth frogs. Remember, frogs was one of the plagues of Egypt, too. It followed right on the heels of the Nile being turned to blood. And those frogs were everywhere. Now, the interesting thing about a frog is it's amphibious. It's as comfortable in the sea as it is in the land, right? Or in the water, water and sea, I should say. And to picture, that's a pretty good depiction of a falsehood. A half-truth, maybe better said. Is a half-truth amphibious? That where does it belong? Is it over here or over there? Is it sea or land? Is it water or land? And, oh, it's both. And these frogs can just come <laughs> hopping out of anywhere to convince you to move in the wrong direction. Remember what came out of the mouth of the Lord back in chapter 1? A sharp two-edged sword. There is truth. There's the word of God. But to see these half-truths and falsehoods hopping their way <laughs> up around everyone, how will we do at navigating the lies of a wicked world? We've got to learn to overcome it. But those who fall for it, 
No wonder they are being drawn together, gathered to this final battle of self-destruction. In verse 15 and 16, a word of truth pierces the falsehoods. Jesus speaks and says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. One last effort on his part to let them know you've got to change. You've got to overcome these frogs of falsehood. I am watching. Are you watching in return? I'm coming as a thief in the night, and if you are not prepared, like the foolish virgins in the parable, then you will be shut out from the marriage feast. That's actually symbolism John is going to use in a coming chapter. But to see this moment right here before the final battle, the Lord inviting them one last time to change. Please watch. Please keep your garments. Remember the parable of the marriage of the king's son? And the man who came in without his garment on, his wedding garment, he was cast out with weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. John is drawing on all of these, uh, these images, trying to paint a picture as, as... The way he's doing this is absolutely incredible. Again, the Euphrates is dried up. The enemy kings are on their way. There's nothing to stop them now. This is going to be a final cataclysmic battle of complete annihilation. And if you're not ready, you will be caught up in it. You will be moved, pushed forward, herded in by this swarm of frogs, pushed to a place of complete destruction. No wonder. One last chance. Honestly, verse 15 feels almost like an interruption, but that's because that's what it is. Jesus giving us one last call to repent. Please keep your garments. Do not walk naked. And remember, naked means uncovered. And cover is the Hebrew word for atone. Do not go out into this wicked world uncovered by the atonement of Jesus Christ. Do not be out there fully exposed to the demands of justice. Come and be covered by the wing of the mother hen. Please come and allow me to protect you, cover you with the armor of God. If not, you will be ashamed. Ashamed of your nakedness, ashamed of your consequences, ashamed that you didn't heed the word to repent. And for those who didn't heed it, notice verse 16. He gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. This is the only place in Scripture we see that word. And to have it become an English word in our vocabulary, when originally it was Hebrew, Har Megiddo is where we get the word Armageddon. And Har is a mountain, and Megiddo is the name of a city in northern Israel. Har Megiddo, it's, it's more hill of Megiddo. It's not quite the mountain of the Lord, Okay. But the hill of Megiddo, Megiddo factored into several major conflicts in the Old Testament. In some ways, it was a crossroads, the middle of a very fertile valley. This is a place that's meant to feed the world, as far as the Israelites were concerned. And yet, instead of a place of feeding the hungry, it is a place where they're going to reap the harvest of their own souls. This is no longer the breadbasket. This is the coffin of the world. 
as opposing armies have come in to clash in hopes of conquering. I've said this before that through much of Old Testament history, the, the promised land was a crossroads between, between kingdoms trying to become world superpowers, whether from the southwest, like Egypt, trying to conquer the world and spread, or kings from the east. Remember, Euphrates is out there. Kings from the east, like the Assyrians, or the Babylonians, or the Persians. And they would come in from that, their direction in hopes of conquering Egypt, or Egypt would come from their direction hoping to conquer them in return. And poor Israel was always caught in the middle getting black eyes left and right as two rival superpowers were fighting right there in the midst of them. And Megiddo becomes this interesting metaphor for those kinds of clashes. There's a, it's, it's hard to think of a better image, a better symbol than Megiddo here for John to call upon, where all nations have come to fight against one another. Okay? With that, verse 17 and 18, the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air. We already saw land, sea, sun, now the air itself. What is it that you're breathing? Is it conflict? Is it wickedness? Is it violence and destruction? This vial is poured out into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven. Remember, it was opened earlier in the chapter. It came from the temple, it came from the throne, and this is what it said. Just three words. It is done. Think about Christ from the cross. It is finished. Here, the battle of Armageddon has come and gone. The wicked have annihilated themselves in a battle of self-destruction. We talk about mutually assured destruction, MAD, and yes, it is madness to, to, to build up these nuclear arsenals to the point that no one would survive final battles like that. Well, it is finished, the wicked are gone, and there were voices and thunders and lightnings, sounds like Sinai all over again, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great, so shaking like nothing they've ever experienced before. Remember, earthquakes were the defining sign of the times for the sixth seal. And here in the seventh, just before the coming of Christ, a shaking like they'd never imagined. We deal with the shaking of faith. Is there the shaking of the foundations of society? Is there ever any solid ground to stand upon? Wise men and women are still looking for rocks to build upon. But where are they? Hard to find. So think about this in terms of the final destruction. That's what's happening throughout this chapter, chapter 16. And after the seventh angel has poured it out, it is done. Armageddon is behind us. In verse 19, the great city was divided into three parts. Perhaps there we think celestial and terrestrial and telestial. Who's left? The cities of the nations fell. Does that remind us of the fall of the great and spacious building in Lehi's dream? Does it remind us of the fall of Babylon that Isaiah talked about in chapter 14? Well, we're going to see it here, loud and clear. Great Babylon came in remembrance before God. Finally time to pay the piper, right? To give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. 
That's the bitter cup that Jesus himself was willing to drink in their stead. But they refused and therefore had to drink it themselves. Every island fled away. The mountains were not found. Remember we saw that back in the sixth seal? Where do you go when your places of refuge are fleeing as well? When sanctuaries are on the run? Well, there was no place to run, no place to hide from consequence. And one last act of destruction. There fell upon men a great hail out of heaven. Every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail. For the plague thereof was exceedingly great. Perhaps this one was the straw that broke the camel's back because it broke everything. I mean, consequences are literally raining from the sky. And there's no avoiding them. Uh, the weight of a talent. I mean, we talk about, have you ever seen hailstones? I mean, often it's what, the size of a pea? From there, golf ball? Baseball? What are we talking about here? A talent weighs somewhere between 60 and 80 pounds. Can you imagine a block of ice coming crashing down with that kind of weight behind it? Talk about violent intensity. Tragically, what, what could that hail have been? It could have been cleansing rain. You've missed the waters, haven't you? Since they all turned to blood. If it would have been gentle rain falling to wash away the consequences of these final battles, to begin to fall again upon the plains of Megiddo so we could grow and produce food again. Ah, we could have had the bread of life growing because of this living water, but this is not water of life. This is water of death and destruction. It is frozen and it is bringing destruction in its wake. To think about what's come of the world by the end of chapter 16, which side will we be on? When the piper comes to be paid, have we repented? Or will there be consequences? With that, when you turn to chapter 17, you get echoes of what Isaiah had said back in chapter 14 of his writings. Oh, how thou hast fallen, O Lucifer, son of the morning. You're just like the king of Babylon. And there you sat, you, you lie in, in the mud, basically. You lie in the grave, more accurately. And we look down at you and think, this is what we were so afraid of? You? You're no better than us. In fact, you're infinitely worse. Why was I so concerned about beasts and images and marks when you're nothing? That's the realization that comes in chapter 17. Starting in verse 1, there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now, in some ways, this is simply a repeat of chapter 16 from a different angle. We've already seen the angels pour out their vials of destruction, and there's nothing left. But let's review it. Let's do an instant replay, shall we? And look up at it from a different camera angle. 
And this time, we are going to personify Babylon as this immoral woman. Jeremiah, Isaiah, other prophets in the Old Testament did that about oh, the prostitute Israel and her backsliding sister Judah. The problems that they were causing, being unfaithful to the Lord. Their covenant infidelity was what caused their destruction. Well, same thing's happening here. And so, do you want to see this again in terms of the judgment upon the great whore? After all, it's one of the seven angels. They just poured out their destruction. Well, let me show you how it looks from this side of things. Okay, And the way they're described as the wine of her fornication. Wine is supposed to be, oh, the... The drink of rejoicing. This is, this is festivities and, well, yeah, that's what they've been dreaming of. That's what they thought things were. It's amazing what happens, though, when you're a little intoxicated with the wine of the world and you start getting a little fuzzy as far as how you're looking at things and a little tipsy. You can't quite tell if you're on the straight and narrow path. I mean, a sobriety test, oh, the world's going to fail that every time. So what do you do with this wine of fornication? Well, most people that are plastered end up falling to the ground. And that's exactly what happens to this woman. If you think about what we saw back in Revelation 14, that chapter about the grapes of wrath, earlier on there was an angel that cried, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. We're seeing this played out all over again. And to get a better view, verse 3 through 5, He carried me away in the Spirit into the wilderness. And remember, wilderness here is an image of apostasy. It's away from the life-giving fields of righteousness. No, it's out in the wilderness. We're going to just let things go wild. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast. Now this, we already saw a woman in the wilderness back in chapter 12, right? That was the woman clothed in the sun, laboring to bring forth this child, the kingdom of God. And yet the woman was carried off into the wilderness to be nourished through the apostasy. This is counterfeit all the way through. Here's another woman. And she's sitting upon a scarlet-colored beast. Well, there's the counterfeit for the lamb. And this beast is full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, maybe that's what makes it hard to tell that it's such a blasphemous beast, even though it has those names written all over it. It's the heads that keep turning and changing. It's the horns that keep pushing us in different directions. But we know what it is when we pick it up. There is blasphemy written all over it. And on top of it, oh, there's where the woman rides. The next verse says, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color. How's that for false royalty? staining blood instead of the redeeming blood of the lamb. She's clothed in red rather than white, suggesting that her quote-unquote royalty is one not in pure ways, but through violence and destruction. She's decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand. But what's it full of? Full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. This is disgusting. This is, this is haunting, what, th th this image that John is giving us. One last detail. Upon her forehead, we've seen the mark of the beast upon those that followed in their direction. But this woman, what's on her forehead? Ah, it's a name written. In fact, several of them. All synonymous, but here's the list. Mystery 
Oh, maybe that's how she comes across at the start. Oh, who is this mysterious woman? In all of her seductive beauty, trying to draw me to follow after her. Oh, mystery. Second name, Babylon, the great. Oh, but it's the greatness and grandeur of this city. Third name, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Oh, now it's starting to become more clear. Not only is she unfaithful herself, but everything she produces, as she has intoxicated the world with the wine of her fornication, everything she produces is unfaithful as well. It's abominable. We've talked about this many times, about the, the analogy between Christ and the church as a husband and wife metaphor, a marriage metaphor. And here we see the other side of things. Christ is to the church as Satan is to the world, also known as Babylon, also known as the whore of all the earth, also known as the great and abominable church. These are the things that Nephi saw in his apocalyptic visions back in 1 Nephi. And remember, the Lord said to him, I showed the same things to John, and whatever you don't write, he will. Well, John's writing it. To see the two mothers vying for the attention of the children, in this eternal custody battle that we're in the midst of. And will we follow the woman who's coming out of the wilderness, fair as the sun and clear as the moon? Or will we be caught up in the mystery of Babylon, not realizing who she's married to? Well, not really married since it's all unfaithful on that side. You understand? These images are meant to move us in the right direction. In some ways, by scaring us off of the wrong way. In verse 6 and 7, John saw the woman, and notice, tipsy, sure enough, drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. To think about the wine of, the, of her fornication, that's one thing. But to be drunk with the blood of the saints? We saw wine representing the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, again, counterfeits on this side. The blood of the saints. There she is dipping her golden cup beneath the altar of self-sacrifice and drunk with their blood, thinking that she's beaten them. She's conquered, triumphed over the, her enemies. Notice, though, when John saw her, he wondered with great admiration. And that's a horrible translation. Because admiration is more a sense of shock and awe, of, of almost a horrified disgust that just drops your jaw and leaves you astonished. How could this be? He wondered. The angel said unto me, wherefore dost thou marvel? It's like, why are you so shell-shocked by this? What do you think she was after? He then says, I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her which hath the seven heads and ten horns. So, you ready to understand this? I want to explain part of this mystery so that you can solve it in the right ways. I mentioned last week, or two weeks ago, I guess, that John in the book of Revelation paints three main pictures of Babylon to show it from different angles. And the beast is the political aspect of Babylon, doggy dog world. This woman, this harlot, this prostitute, is the ideological aspect of Babylon. Uh, I've heard it said, I, I studied rhetoric, and rhetoric was often called the harlot of the arts. Because if you're just, oh, using words and 
trying to be persuasive, anybody can hire rhetoric. Oh yeah, she's, she's willing to, to sell her wares to the highest bidder. And to those that are trying to seduce people into purchasing whatever it is that Babylon has to offer, oh, they'll fall for it hook, line, and sinker if you can get them sufficiently persuaded. Well, if rhetoric is the harlot of the arts, then the harlot here, again, is a perfect description of ideology, philosophy, religious views, just anything that works on the mind to seduce, to tempt, to persuade. And John is seeing this played out. The next chapter, chapter 18, we'll see in a moment, is the third example, and that's the merchant city, which signifies the economic aspect of things. They're all coming together to paint this horrific picture of Babylon. And here the angel himself wants to make sure that John is getting it. In verse 8 and 9 he explains, The beast that thou sawest was and is not. So wait a minute, it's a thing of the past? It's not a thing of the present? Then why am I so worried? Well, keep reading. It shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. Now, you've sufficiently confused? It's like, wait a minute, angel, I thought you were here to solve the mystery, not, not <laughs> confuse me by another one. Well, here's the issue. What, what did you learn about the Lord earlier on in the book of Revelation? He's past, present, and future also. He was and is and is to come. But also at a time he was not. He was killed. He was crucified. But he came back from the dead, conquering death in the act. Well, in a similar way, but in a counterfeit way, this beast, oh, once you think you've finally slain him, he just comes back again in a new guise. This is the hydra cut off one neck and two more will reappear. This is... Kingdoms come and kingdoms go, an hour of pomp, an hour of show. But there always seems to be another worldly kingdom waiting in the wings. <sighs> Will we ever fully overcome it? Well, yes, we've already been singing about that. Haven't you heard? But in this moment, I need you to see the beast more clearly than perhaps you ever have before. So, John, in your present moment... And later readers will have present moments of their own. But for you, right here, right now, let me explain this. Verse 9. Here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Now, John wouldn't have blinked an eye at that. He would have known exactly what the angel meant by the seven mountains. Because Rome even to this day, is still known as the city of the seven hills. Now, seven, we've seen repeatedly as a number that symbolizes totality and completeness, wholeness. And in some ways, it seems fitting that Rome, at that time, would be the city of the seven hills because this is, this is the world's superpower in John's day. Seven hills, not just Rome. We're talking the whole world. Hills as far as the eye can see. It seems like the Roman army has marched forth upon those well-constructed Roman roads as far as you can imagine and conquered the world as we know it. Rome then becomes the microcosm of the macro-Roman empire. And to see this city 
as the center of it all. Now, please do not think Catholicism. This is not Catholicism for John. It would be years and centuries before Rome became the real headquarters of the Christian church. At this moment, for John, it's the headquarters of everything that is antithetical to the Christian church. It is the seat of the beast. It is the throne of the woman. It is the merchant city in terms of headquarters. It's Babylon brought back to life. And so just like we've seen Egypt as a symbol of the wicked world, like we've seen Sodom and Gomorrah as symbols of the wicked world, as we've seen Babylon, Babylon is the one that seems to just run from here on out. And even in the Doctrine and Covenants, we're told to flee Babylon because it's such a fitting image. And yet Rome becomes the image of Babylon in John's day. And so to picture Rome as the, I mean, I've heard it said that late, late, lately, if you've seen these memes, that everybody seems to be thinking about the Roman Empire. I don't know why. But how often do you think about the Roman Empire? Well, if you think about it symbolically, you're, it's on your mind all the time. Because the Roman Empire is Hollywood. The Roman Empire is New York. The Roman Empire is all those, it's all those cities I mentioned back in chapter 2 and chapter 3 with their modern equivalents. Ideologically, philosophically, Rome is Boston, right? Uh, governmentally, Rome is Washington, D.C. As far as entertainment, Rome is Hollywood. As far as economics, Rome is New York City. Uh, as far as, oh, hedonism, Rome is Las Vegas. Rome seems to be everywhere present. There's no escaping it. It's seven hills are popping up everywhere you can imagine. But those hills are counterfeits for the mountain of the Lord. And we better be able to tell the difference. We better be able to overcome the Roman Empire in our day. It's political power. It's intellectual influence. It's philosophical force. It's social status. All of those are ways that the world is too much with us. And we have to be able to overcome. Now, verse 10, the explanation continues. There are seven kings. Five are fallen. One is. The other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not... Even he is the eighth, and is of the seventh, and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. Now, what on earth was that all about? Well, in a way, this is simply a parade of villainous kings, one after another. Like I said already, kingdoms come and kingdoms go, an hour of pomp, an hour of show, and it's like, next, next, next. And so you had these seven kings, five, they're already gone. Think about Roman emperors, for example. Maybe that was on John's mind. And we've had this array of enemies of righteousness. Caesars who think they are God incarnate themselves. Oh, no, no. That already came. The word was made flesh, and it wasn't in Julius or Augustus or any of the rest. It certainly wasn't Nero. It's not Diocletian. It's not these enemies of the kingdom of Christ. It's those that are trying to create a kingdom of the world. And some are gone. Some we're waiting for. 
You see, some are yet to come, but they always seem to grow out of the last. And then when it talks about ten horns being ten other kings, they haven't received a kingdom yet, but they will. They'll get their hour with the beast. In section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants, there's a parable about each servant in the vineyard getting an hour to rejoice in the joy of their Lord. Well, here you have the devil's version. Kings reigning for an hour, but reigning for the beast. Ten is interesting too, by the way. Because if you think about Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the kingdom's coming and going, from the head to the shoulders, to the, to the torso, to the legs, to the feet, to the toes, and going from gold to silver to bronze to clay to, or excuse me, to iron, and then to clay mingled with iron. How many toes would that statue have had? Ah, ten of them. And here come these ten future kingdoms. Well, verse 13 and 14, doesn't matter how many toes there are, these have only one mind. That's why it's kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Different kings each, each hour, but it's the same beast behind them all. It's the same red dragon breathing into them his way of doing things. So these have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. That's who they work for after all. They're just puppet figures in his hand. These shall make war with the lamb. And that's the bad news. But here's the good news. And the lamb shall overcome them. Remember our motto? Jesus wins. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And they that are with him, three beautiful adjectives to describe, are called and chosen and faithful. And yes, those who are called and chosen, since many are called but few chosen, well, you've got to be both. And in fact, how do you do both? By being faithful all the way through. They have to be of one mind as well. If wickedness is fully unified in pursuit of the beast's goals, then the righteous saints better be equally unified. One heart, one mind, dwelling in righteousness, no poor among us. Zion better be one incredible team as well, with Christ at the head, calling every play. With that, verse 15 and 16, he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Picture these foaming masses, swirling, crashing against each other. Picture how easily tossed they are by the winds of doctrine, by the currents of culture. Oh, peoples, nations, kingdoms, tongues, yeah, waters, as far as the eye can see. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. How's that for an intense description of her eventual end? Wait a minute, they, they hate the whore? I thought they were going in unto her, seduced by her mysteries. Well, yeah, but once they got what they wanted, they tossed her back out on the street. There is no love loss there. There's no loyalty among, there's no honor among thieves, as they say right? There's no loyalty on the devil's side of things. Think about what the Jaredite civilization did as it cannibalized itself. It goes back to that mutually assured destruction, the madness I mentioned before. Think about how the Nephite civilization came crashing to its end. 
with the Lamanites swallowing them up, but then the Lamanites turning on themselves, on each other, in acts of self-destruction as well. It's almost like, oh, we, we just want enemies. And once we've killed our enemies, we turn enemies, we make enemies out of friends. And we start fighting amongst ourselves. Yes, they hate the whore. And so though they at one point were clothing her in scarlet and purple, now she is desolate and naked. And yes, cannibalized and consumed in destroying fire. So that the chapter can end in verse 17 and 18. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will. Interesting. That though this is an act of self-destruction, God does allow it to happen because it is by the wicked that the wicked are punished. Okay? So he's put it in their hearts to fulfill his will. He's not causing them to do this. No, but he's allowing it to happen because judgment is being passed. So he put it in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdoms unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. So this woman is Babylon. No wonder she's called the whore of all the earth. There's some interesting metamorphoses going on here. Because by the time you shift from 17 to 18, this whore becomes the merchant city. She grows into the city on, of the seven hills. And that actually makes sense when you really think about it. It's tough to tell the difference sometimes between the ideological and the economic, the philosophical and the political. It all seems to be one big mass and one big mess. And how do we extricate ourselves from it? It's hard to say. Where does one end and the next begin? And again, no wonder John is just giving us different angles on the same object. And that object is the wicked world. Whatever you might want to call it, however you perceive it, we have to come forth because Babylon is falling. Now, chapter 18 paints this in, most, in, in economic terms. Okay? We've seen the beast clearly. We've seen the, the mother of harlots. Now let's look at the merchant city and see what becomes of it. I love chapter 18. It's, well, love and hate, okay? The way it's depicted is so oh, true to form. When I was a little boy, I loved going through the Sears catalog. It was before internet, and especially as Christmas approached, and just look page after page and wonder what I, what I should want. And, oh, talk about the harlot of the arts. Yes, it was all so seductive, so appealing, so enticing. I wanted it all. Well, we're going to see exactly what this merchant city buys and sells in this chapter. Verse 1 and 2, After these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. Now, based on what this angel is about to say, he sounds a lot like the one in Revelation 14 we've already quoted, the one that announces to the world that Babylon the Great has fallen. Sure enough, this one echoes the same kind of announcement. He cried mightily with a strong voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. It's like he had to repeat himself because everyone's like, what? Are you kidding me? There's no way. Uh, the, the stock market can't collapse that far. Okay, you, you can't overcome the world in all of its aspect. Well, it, it, it's gone. It's fallen. It's fallen. And then these three interesting echoes. 
it's become the habitation of devils. There's the first. And the hold of every foul spirit. There's the second. And a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. That's the third. And if you think about the order there, ah, no wonder we were so seduced into moving our citizenship into a place like this. At first, it was simply a habitation. I didn't realize they were devils. They were so bedecked in other things. Uh, But I guess I was deceived. I just thought I was moving in and... I mean, they kept telling me that housing values were going to keep soaring, that the stock stock market would continually increase. As long as you just trust us, believe, but your money's safe here. Just come and dwell. Hollywood's amazing. The weather's incredible. Uh, Look at all that we've got to offer you. Well, unfortunately, what started as a habitation quickly becomes a hold because it gets a hold of you. So much easier to move into Babylon than to move out of it. And so habitation has become hold. In fact, by the time we're, all is said and done, it's not just a hold, it's a cage. And there's no escaping. The lock's on the door that at first kept, well, they kept God out have now closed on me and they're keeping me in. Is there any escape from Babylon? Especially now that I've heard rumors that it's destined to fall. Can I withdraw my money? Can I close my bank account? Can I take my assets and run? Ah, That's the question. It's interesting because in some ways it... It shows us something that Alexander Pope said in the 18th century. Amazing poet. Uh, Alexander Pope, famous lines, famous lines. He said it this way. Vice is a monster of so frightful mien as to be hated needs but to be seen. Yet seen too oft, familiar with her face. Uh, We first endure, then pity, then embrace. And that seems to be what verse 2 has described for us. I didn't realize it was a cage or a hold. I simply thought it was a habitation. And I embraced that, not knowing that eventually, like I said, it would close in on me and there would be no escaping. We've got to be careful. This is what Nephi described as the flaxen cords that keep getting wrapped around us until they turn into strong bonds from which it's hard to escape. That's the description here. Now verse 3, all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. No wonder we're all stuck here. All nations have been drinking this stuff. Uh, We had no idea its intoxicating effect. We had no idea it would affect our vision, make it hard for us to stand up straight. We're all wasted on this wine of fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. The merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. Ah, that's how we got trapped. It was these delicacies. You know, in some ways there's no avoiding completely the world economy. The buying and selling. Everyone is subject to some kind of alluring pull. 
It's amazing how seductive the world's wares can be made to appear. And her delicacies being oh, peddled by every merchant, in some ways they don't care what they're selling as long as we're buying. I read a book uh, recently, well, it's been a few years now, on the history of advertising. I actually just met with a student of mine who's a marketing major, and I showed him the book. He's like, wow, I, what did you read that for? And I said, well, as one who studies rhetoric, it's the buying and selling of certain philosophies, ways of doing things, ways of seeing the world. And it was interesting to read a history of advertising in America and realize that what they were really selling was not products, but rather the desire for more products. What we're really selling is commercialism and consumerism, and people are eating it up. Because as soon as they buy one thing, thinking that's going to satisfy my hunger, no, what we've been selling you is the hunger itself. And that way, it's never satiated. And you just keep wanting and keep buying and keep purchasing, and, and you are never satisfied with what you have. Interesting that we've fallen into that pit. But notice verse 4 through 6. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. That's always the invitation. Please repent. Okay, I'm trying to wake you up. Uh, you got to sober up. Get away from the wine of fornication and realize where, you're, where you are. Come out of her, my people. Think how often in the Doctrine and Covenants we're told to flee Babylon. Well, here it is. Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. There's choice and consequence. Get out of the sin, and you'll avoid the plague. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. How can he forget? They're staring him in the face. They've reached to heaven itself. And so he has to pass judgment now. And here it is. Reward her, even as she rewarded you. And double unto her, double according to her works. In the cup which she hath filled, fill to her double. Oh, he's speaking their language with words like reward and words like double. I mean, talk about a return on your investment, right? Double whatever it was that you put in the pot. Oh, and with returns like that, yeah, no wonder I keep playing the game. No wonder I keep gambling because I seem to win with every hand. Well, this is a losing hand when all is said and done, and yet the Lord is going to reward those in ways they have quote-unquote rewarded others. Remember, you were thirsty for others' blood. Eventually, blood is the only thing you'll have yourself to drink. Same thing going on here. This is the law of the harvest. This is reaping what they've sown. These are multiplied plagues and a bull market for sin and their consequences. No wonder we have to flee Babylon. We've got to get out while we still can. You see in verse 7 and 8, how much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously. This is she as the harlot, that is now she as the city. And man, look at her. Just like we saw the woman clothed in scarlet and purple, the city itself seems to be decked out in similar attire. Just glorious, delicious is how everyone seems to be living. But notice the result. Remember, she's going to be rewarded even as she rewarded others. So here's the judgment. So much torment and sorrow give her. 
For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen, and am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death, and mourning, and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. What an insight into how she is now convincing herself that the bill will never come due. She seems invincible. I'm too big to fail, as we heard in a recent economic downturn. And as long as it's being propped up by the populace, then sure, I'm no widow. Are you kidding? I'll always have someone to provide for me. I'll never be left on my own. I'm a queen, after all. Look at me astride my incredible beast. Look at me sitting here amidst this magnificent city. None of this will ever come crashing down. Well, you ever heard of a stock market crash? You ever heard of a housing bubble bursting? Dot com? I mean, there are so many examples throughout history of things that seemed... I mean, when was the last time you shopped at a Blockbuster video? And yet Blockbuster seemed to be invincible, right? Uh, these, uh, when was the last time you shopped at a Sears or a JCPenney's? I mean, these institutions that had been centuries old. And then, uh, to drive past a mall, this is an interesting one. To drive past a mall and see empty parking lots. And what are we going to do with all of this retail space? Do we turn it into a junior college? That's happening more and more. To get to this point where it is death and mourning and famine one day later. And the company that thought it would be here through everyone's retirement doesn't even make it through a lifespan. No wonder verse 9 tells us that the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning. They'll be standing afar off for the fear of her torment. That's interesting, by the way. If they're standing afar off, it's like, ooh, I don't want to be a part of her. Ooh, is she starting to feel like a widow now? But I thought you were mine. I thought I was yours. I thought we were going to support each other. I thought we were a match made in heaven. Uh, no, they, this was a match made in hell. And there's no loyalty there. It's all lust and no loyalty. What do you think fornication and adultery is? Well, they fear falling into the same torment. So it's like, nope, wash my hands of it. And I'm going to stand afar off and just watch. And they will say, alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city. For in one hour is thy judgment come. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her. But notice, this is self-serving sorrow. Why are they mourning? <laughs> are they sorry for what she's going through? No, they're only sad about what this means for their bottom line. They weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise anymore. This is a going out of business sale like no one's ever seen. These are stockpiles of merchandise that nobody wants anymore. What am I going to do with it? And having gambled 
on the fact, or, well, it's no longer a fact, that's been made brutally clear, but having gambled on the hope that every investment comes in, and these get-rich-quick schemes, of course we're going to be able to line our pockets. I, to me, honestly, as powerful as the beast might seem, and as seductive as the mother of harlots is, in our economic age, I wonder if Revelation 18 is the most appropriate image of them all. Because we do live in a day of capitalism, consumerism, commercialism, that is so intently self-serving. And we have to be careful. Politics so often seems to be more of a matter of economics. And who's rich enough to run? And lobbyists paying money. And is power just pursued when it's economics that's really the driver? Is the beast wow, almost purring at the feet of the, of the president and CEO of the merchant city? And same with the ideologies and the philosophies. Is the woman, has the woman, no, I mean, no wonder the woman morphs into the merchant city. Because why are people wanting an education? So often it's not for education's sake. It's, I just want to major in whatever's going to make me rich. And the, the tragedy of all of this is when those earthly cares go up in smoke, what will we have to show for all that we've been trying to amass? Well, let's make it even more personal, shall we? Look at verse 12 and 13. And what is it that Babylon buys so cheap and sells so high? Oh, I mentioned the Sears catalog. Well, here's the Sears catalog of hell. It's the delivery boys from Babylonian industries. And notice what they buy and sell. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and of pearls. And that stands to reason. Everybody wants to have those costly things. Interesting because these were things that were meant to be used for the high priest's breastplate of judgment. But oh no, I can refashion those into something much more self-serving. Turn the page, see what else is for sale. Oh, how about the fine linen? You'd look so good in this. I mean, fine linen was meant to be used in priestly robes and tabernacle veils. But imagine how nice you would look wrapped up in this finery. Especially if it were purple and silk and scarlet. Ooh, those were the colors of the beast, weren't they? Keep reading. We also sell all thyene wood and all manner of vessels of ivory and all manner of vessels of most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble. If that's not what you're looking for, how about this? Cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense. I know most of that is supposed to be used for the altar of incense, but no, don't send prayers to the, to the heavens. Oh, start praying for yourself and use this frankincense to enrich yourself. If that's not what you're in the market for, how about wine and oil? Uh, there's not so many good Samaritans anymore using that to care for the wounded travelers around them. Instead, they're drinking this wine and rejoicing in this oil, all expended on themselves. What else you got? Fine flour? How about wheat? Any beasts you need? Are you in the market for sheep or horses or chariots? Well, 
to me, what's most powerful is if you were to go back and reread verse 12 and 13 without any of my color commentary, just fly through the pages of the, the Sears catalog, okay? And how does it end? Because everything, we've almost been lulled into this sense of oh, appetite that can never be satisfied. I just want to buy more and more and more and, and put it on my tab and I'll pay you later. But notice how it all ends. Yes, it's gold and silver and stone, precious stones and pearls. Yes, it's fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet. Yes, it's thine wood and ivory and precious wood and brass and iron and marble. Let's go with cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense. Let's bring on the wine and the oil and the fine flour and the wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men. That's what Babylon's been after all along. Everything else has just been bait to trap us in the cage that this merchant city was designed to become all along. Slaves, souls of men. You want to talk about the objectification and commodification of human beings? That's exactly what Babylon's after. I mean, we should have known that, right? What was this merchant city before? She was a prostitute. The ultimate example of objectifying and commodifying a child of God. Now we just buy and sell each other. And whether it's corporate greed, whether it's neglecting the poor that are doing so much of the work and not making much of the reward. There are so many examples of this kind of mentality all around us, and it is a haunting judgment, condemnation of the way we approach the buying and selling of one another. I, I don't know all the solutions to this. Well, I do. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Consecration is the cure for commercialism and consumerism. It's coming to buy milk and honey without money and without price. It's coming to him who has the riches of eternity. The one who was able to say to Satan when he offered him the kingdoms of the world. Eh, no, I'm not interested. Someday the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And yeah, I can wait. Okay? I'll take a mansion on high over a mansion down below. Any day. That's why I'm not lamenting over this worldly stock market crash like everyone else seems to be. You see verse 14 and 15 the fruits that thy soul lusted after are departed from thee, and all things which were dainty and goodly are departed from thee too. And thou shalt find them no more at all. Sorry, we're all out. The merchants of these things which were made rich by her shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing. Just like we saw a few verses ago. Remember Uncle Mike pointing out how many of these words started with D the dainties and the delicacies and the deliciousness of it all. And yet now those D's have been replaced by 
other ones, like death and destruction. It's all that's left. And how do they respond? Verse 16 through 18, they were saying, alas, alas, that great city. They are mourning. Again, self-serving sorrow, but still. That great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. All those things I saw on the pages of the catalog. For in one hour, so great riches is come to naught. And every shipmaster and all the company and ships and sailors and as many as trade by sea stood afar off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? Oh, you see how everyone was in on the game? Everyone trying to make a buck, now mourning and lamenting their losses. Verse 19, they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city, wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness. For in one hour is she made desolate. That's the part that shocks everyone to no end. They keep bringing it up. How could this have happened so quickly? When we thought, I mean, this is the destruction of the city of Ammonihah. Remember in the Book of Mormon? Like, oh, that'll never happen to us. Oh, it happened faster than anyone imagined. But if that's the reaction on the, on the side of those that were self-serving, notice the reaction on the side of those that were serving God through it all. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. There's the justice they've been waiting for all along. So mourning among the wicked, rejoicing among the righteous, judgment has been passed. To the point that verse 21 can say that a great angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. And the voice of harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee. And no craftsman of whatever craft he be shall be found any more in thee. And the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee. There's something fitting about this as well. If you think about something Jesus taught in the Gospels, where he spoke of a millstone being used to hang around the neck of any who offended one of his little ones, and then cast that millstone into the depths of the sea. It would have been better for that person never to have lived and that is strong condemnation on the part of Jesus. Well, we're seeing that condemnation being passed here. And so take the millstone. And that's the end, and again, a perfect image for the kind of merchant city that Babylon has become. Because with a millstone, what do you do? You grind grain. This is, you, you harvest things. And it's all about the harvest and how much can I gather in? How much can I... Okay, underpay my agricultural workers out there harvesting the wheat so that I can then grind the wheat into flour and then overpay those same poor people, or overcharge, I should say, so they overpay for the work they've been underpaid to do. Interesting how that works. And who gets rich all the way through? Oh, the owner of it all. And what ends up happening here then is, okay, they're not using the millstone the way it was intended. 
they are not grinding grain to be able to feed the poor. No, they're feeding themselves on the poor. In fact, I, was it, I should have looked this up. I can't remember if it's Isaiah or Amos, but they talk about grinding the face of the poor. Ah. And how's that for millstone imagery? Instead of grinding grain for the poor, you're taking the poor and grinding them. Which means you are using the millstone in a way it was never intended. And if that's the case, fine. You want to stick with your millstone? It will stick with you. But it will drag you down to self-destruction. Intense what John is describing here. He's trying to wake us up from our intoxicated slumber. So he closes this chapter, verse 23 and 24, with this. The light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee. And the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. And hold on to that imagery because it's going to come roaring back in chapter 19. Some beautiful juxtaposition here. But here in Babylon, nope. No bridegrooms rejoicing. No brides preparing themselves for the wedding feast. Because that's all gone. There's not even candlelight anymore. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth, but they're gone. For by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. Remember deception is the crowning sign of the times in the last days. We've been deceived. We've been, we've been suckered into buying something of no value. And unfortunately, Babylon has a horrible return policy. It won't take any of it back because it knows it was worthless to begin with. The chapter ends, In her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. No wonder they had to pay the piper. This is an interesting end of this chapter and an interesting end of the bad news. The rest of the book of Revelation will be far more glorious. So stick with me, okay? Chapter 19 and 20 and 21 and 22 has, have such they're glorious things yet to come. But the way the bad news here comes to its close with the collapse of the economy of Babylon, to see, think about this, no candles, no light. You can see the glow of Las Vegas from miles and miles away in the deserts of Nevada. It's almost an oasis in the desert, or at least it's made to appear that way. Oh, come and stay as long as you'd like. To see the lights of New York City, for example. You can walk down Times Square in, at midnight, and it seems like broad daylight with all the electric glow. But that's gone. It's out of business. How about the bridegrooms and brides? Uh, don't they have like drive-through weddings in Las Vegas also? No, there's no more time for weddings when all we have are funerals. And Tinsel Town, yep, that's all it was, just tinsel. And all that glitters is not gold. No wonder it was described as sorcery and deception. It's all Babylon had was smoke and mirrors. <laughs> Magic to make something seem worth the price when it isn't. I mean, honestly, what John has portrayed in the last few chapters ought to arrest our attention, ought to stop us in our tracks. 
we've got to pause here and get our bearings, look around and realize what we've been up against, but what has become of it all? The beast has eaten itself. The mother of harlots has been abandoned by those with whom she was committing fornication. And the merchant city, the merchants are, have all closed up shop. There's no more slaves and souls of men to buy and sell. I mean, honestly, pause here, because like I said, the rest of Revelation is glorious good news. But pause here and remember these three aspects. Okay, you want a chart? I'll give you one. You've got the beast, the whore, and the merchant city. Describing Babylon in its political aspect, its ideological aspect, and its economic aspect. The beast is there growling us into subjection to its pride and ambition. The whore is seducing us with her calls to lust and appetite. And the merchant city, what's it selling more than anything else? It is selling materialism and greed. If you go back to the temptations of Jesus Christ in the wilderness, there were three of those as well. And they mirror these three aspects of Babylon perfectly. The beast was Satan's call to Jesus to jump from the temple. Because there's pride for you. There's ambition. There's power if you'll take it. Because the people will come running and realize who you really are. The whore was the one that was coaxing Jesus into changing stones into bread. Now how's that for an appetite that you could easily satisfy if you just give into it? And the merchant city, there's the third temptation of Jesus. Worship me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Back when we studied those earlier on this year, I mentioned that those three temptations mirror the three kings of united Israel. There were only three who ruled all 12 tribes. Saul, David, and Solomon. And those three kings of Israel succumbed to these three temptations. King Saul was devoured by the beast because it was his pride that vanquished him. King David was seduced by the mother of harlots and gave in to the lust of the flesh. While Solomon did end up worshiping the world so that the world would worship him with all of its so-called glory and grandeur, its materialism, its worldly wealth. He had it all until it all came crashing down. What amazes me as I ponder these in light of the book of Revelation is the temptations that overcame the three kings of Israel did nothing to tempt the king of kings. He overcame them all. And he is inviting each of us to do likewise, to see through the beast and realize that there is a lamb far more, far more worth following, to ignore this woman in her scarlet and purple robes and come to the woman clothed in the sun, ready to bring forth her man-child. And the merchant city, oh, I don't have time for that. I don't have time to buy or sell there because I'm trying to build a city that's far more celestial. It's the new Jerusalem for me. And so your temptations... They're not that tempting after all. Once I can see through them, and it's 
Jesus Christ himself that gives us the eyes to see. Chapter 19 of Revelation, the Lord then shows us what he's been trying to put before us all along. If you can overcome the wicked world, ah, then here's the kingdom of God that's waiting for you to be a citizen. If you can overcome the beast, then come and rejoice with the lamb. Do you remember how chapter 18 ended that there's no more weddings going on? It's just funerals as far as the eye can see. Well, that all gives way to chapter 19, which is the marriage feast of the Lamb of God. Uh, it's the, it's the, this, this is the parable of the marriage of the king's son. So ga- gather your wedding garment and come running. This is a feast like you've never experienced before. This is a feast of fat things, of wine on the lees well refined. Forget the wine of the cup of her fornication. This is not the wrath of God. This is the glory of God. And you invited in to participate. You ten virgins, do you have enough oil? Are you ready? Because at midnight the bridegroom comes and it is a wedding that you're being invited to celebrate. There is something magnificent about this time of new beginning. This couple that has a whole life ahead of them. And everyone comes running to celebrate with them. To give them gifts. To help them start out life together. And so for chapter 19 of Revelation, this second half of this week's lesson starts with with wedding bells. And they're glorious. So verse 1 through 3, after these things. And what were these things? Well, everything we saw in the previous few chapters. All the destruction, all the death, all the, the devastation that comes in the wake of Babylon. All these things, like the beast in 13, and the mother of harlots in 17, and the merchant city in 18. No, those are all things of the past. So after these things, what can we finally enjoy? I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. The new song seems to be echoing all over again, (laughs) to the tune of wedding bells, no less. For true and righteous are his judgments. Again, it's time to reassure that your justice has not been unmerciful. Your judgment, the destruction of all of these things, it's not, it wasn't anger on your part. It wasn't vengefulness. It was truth and righteousness. Because you invited them to repent. You called them to the wedding feast over and over and over. They just wouldn't come. For he hath judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. One of the juxtapositions that Uncle Mike brought out in his book that I loved was the language of the mourners in chapter 18 lined up next to the language of rejoicing of the the guests at the wedding feast in chapter 19. You remember last chapter, chapter 18, the merchants and the sailors were all saying, alas, alas. It's like, woe is me. Where's my next paycheck going to come from? Whereas the wedding guests in chapter 19, it's not alas, alas. It's alleluia, alleluia, which means praise the Lord. This is hallelujah without the H. It's the same idea. It's the same word. And to have this rejoicing in the righteous judgment of God, 
that we're finally free of the wicked world. Like I said at the beginning of this week's lesson, Pharaoh's armies have been swallowed up once and for all. Babylon can no longer come back to buy me into bondage. I'm free. And I'm at a wedding feast, <laughs> celebrating. In verse 4, who else is on the guest list? The four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne. We're in the temple for this, for this wedding, okay? We're back before his throne. We're in the Holy of Holies, and the 24 elders are there, casting their crowns at the Lord's feet. The four beasts are there with all of their agency and, and their omniscience, pointed in the direction of worship for the Father and the Son. Oh, they are there. They're saying, Amen. They're saying, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God. All ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. I mean, they didn't have to be told. They were all already doing that. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Once again, this is this song of praise encompassing all of creation. The new song echoing eternally. Verse 7 and 8 then follow. What else are we singing? Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. Now, part of that let us be glad is this invitation for one another, like, hey, let's do this. Can you believe we're invited to this wedding? In fact, can you believe we're the bride in this marriage? So yes, let's be glad. Let's rejoice. But there's a part of me that reads it in the face of all the opposition we faced up to this point. Every obstacle that's been slowing us down from getting ready for the wedding. And to fallen Babylon, I just want to say, please, let us be glad. Just let us rejoice. Get, what is it about you that wants to get in the way of our rejoicing? Remember how Alma said that to Korahor? Would you please just get out of our way, leave us alone, and let us rejoice in this moment. The beautiful thing about that is there's nothing now that Babylon can do can get to get in the way of the wedding. Do you remember that scene in Fiddler on the Roof when that beautiful Jewish wedding was interrupted, ruined by the police force that came to disrupt everything? Well, there's no fear of that at this moment. We finally get to be glad and rejoice to the full. Because the marriage of the Lamb is come. Notice the next line. His wife hath made herself ready. And then the line after that. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Those two verses need to go side by side, hand in hand. Because the first verse speaks of our side. The wife hath made herself ready. And the next verse speaks of the Lord's side. To her was granted, allowed, permitted to be arrayed in fine linen. We will never find linen clean enough and white enough if we're depending on ourselves. Yes, we have to do our very best to make ourselves ready. But when all is said and done, our righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not our own. He's the one that grants that we could be arrayed in spotless white because he takes our sins and our stains upon him. We'll see that clearly once the bridegroom appears in just a moment. 
But, but pause here for a second. I just want to dwell on this incredible moment when the bride gets to come forth. Remember, husbands love your wives even as Christ loved the church. And so we're talking about the church here. And what is the church doing to make herself ready? We've been powdering our noses for 200 years. And we still have a lot of work to be done. I remember in my own temple ceiling, kind of pinching myself. Like, I can't believe I'm married now. That she's mine and I'm hers and that we're one forever. I remember we were sealed in the San Diego temple. And my father's uncle, Bill Lewis, was the architect. And I remember going through the temple open house when I was a teenager. And he was our tour guide. And pointed out all these things, including the grand staircase. Now, if you've seen the San Diego Temple with its two magnificent spires, one of those whole spires is the celestial room. The other is the grand staircase. And the way Uncle Bill described it, he said there was only one engineering firm in the country that could pull off that staircase the way he envisioned it. You see, Bill loves to use cantilevers in some of his uh, architecture. And a cantilever is where a part of the building is sticking out and it doesn't look like anything is supporting it from below. It's, it's got counterbalance from inside and the other part of the building is holding it up. It's interesting architecturally. But it does really give it this sense of just something floating there. And that's what he wanted for the temple. He wanted a staircase that would be this grand sweeping spiral staircase that would leave the ground, swoop out to the side, have a, a, stair, a, a landing halfway up, and then come back and connect to the second floor. And then do the whole thing again for the third. But the part that was so hard for engineering firms to figure out was how do you get a staircase that large and that heavy to be supported through cantilevers where nothing's holding it up out there as it sweeps out into space. The only place the staircase is supported by anything is when it leaves the ground, connects back to the second floor, and then connects back to the third floor. So the main, the main weight of it all is just hanging out in space. And that was the point, Uncle Bill said. He wanted it to feel like you were being lifted to heaven with nothing earthbound behind you. You get that sense on that glorious staircase. And right after my wife and I were sealed, I went to the men's dressing room. She went to the women's dressing room. I put on my tuxedo. She put on her wedding gown. And we were ready to go out and take pictures. And I had to wait. Now, it's worth it. Uh, there's an old stereotypical joke about husbands always waiting for their wives. But there's probably a stereotypical truth that the wife is typically worth the wait. Uh, it didn't take long for the guy to get ready because there's not that much you could do, <laughs> at least in my case. I, there's not a whole lot I could do with this anyway. So, yeah, uh, comb my hair and uh, get my tuxedo on and I'm, I'm out there waiting for her. But my wife oh, was so worth the wait. I sat in the shadow of that glorious staircase. It's right in between the men's and women's dressing rooms. And I just sat there pinching myself in disbelief that I was actually married. She said yes. I couldn't believe it. Up to that moment, she could have bailed at any time. But she said yes. And as I waited, she finally came forth. Fair as the moon and clear as the sun and terrible as an army with banners. I don't know if I'd ever seen anything so breathtaking in all my life. 
There are a few moments of mortality I hope to rewind and relive in the next life, and that's one of them. Because as she came forth, having made herself ready, I'd never seen anything like it. And can you imagine the Lord feeling that way about the church? If we can just make ourselves ready. If we can repent of our sins and come unto Christ and make true covenants with him and then act like it. If we can love those all around us, if we can forgive one another, if we can prepare the earth for the second coming of Jesus Christ, then the creation itself will come to the wedding. That's the hope. And again, there's no hope without Christ's willingness to grant us clothing so white that only he deserves to wear it. You understand this? This wedding scene is absolutely beautiful. This is the fulfillment of the parable of the ten virgins. And we're not just waiting to come in as guests. We're the wife. And I hope we have enough oil amassed to be ready when he comes. With that, look at verse 9 and 10. He saith unto me, he is this heavenly messenger, this, this uh, person that's proclaiming the marriage of the, of the Lamb. He says to John, write. So get out your pen, your pencil, write this down. Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, these are the true sayings of God. So yeah, bank on it. Put this down in your little black book. This is worth recording. This is the marriage. And you made it. Now, how does John respond to it? I fell at his feet to worship him. Wouldn't you, this heavenly messenger before you? But the messenger said to John, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, there's a lot going on in that verse. First off, the fact that this is a fellow disciple, not God. Uh, and in some ways, even those who are are there in the throne room. Picture the 24 elders. Picture the, the four beasts. I mean, these are heavenly beings. They have crowns themselves. But what do the, the 24 elders do with their crowns? They cast them at the feet of God. I'm not worth bowing to. I'm bowing right, right alongside you as we all bow before Christ. Bow before the Father and the Son, those worthy of our worship. So get up, get up off, your, off your knees before me. I'm nothing. I'm simply a fellow servant. If there's anything good about me, it's the fact I have a testimony of Jesus. And that, my friend, is the spirit of prophecy. Now, I love the definition we're given in that passage. Now, what is prophecy? We always say that it is the ability to tell the future. What does that have to do with the testimony of Jesus? Well, in some ways, everything. Because if I truly believe in Christ, what does my faith allow me to foretell? Oh, a glorious future. One illuminated by a perfect brightness of hope. I know my future will be glorious because I believe in Jesus. I know yours will too. It's what gives, gives me hope that I can be ready for the second coming. That I might actually be arrayed in spotless clothing, pure and white. It's my faith in Christ that tells me that there's no such thing as permanent bad news. And that is a glorious future I can predict for anyone willing to come unto Christ. 
That's how the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Years ago, I was teaching the book of Isaiah to a bunch of seminary kids. And I asked a student at the start, please pray. Will you give the opening prayer? She's like, sure. I said, make, make sure that you call down the power of heaven to fill us all with the spirit of prophecy. And she looks at me like, huh? I'm supposed to like ask God to make us all tell the future? And then I said, well, no, not quite. Look at this verse in Revelation 19 and see that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. That's all I'm asking you to pray for. May we study the words of Isaiah through the lens of our testimony of Jesus. And once we see Jesus, once we know we're looking for Jesus, we'll see him all over the place in the book of Isaiah. She's like, oh, that I can do. And she did. This is the testimony that John had, that his fellow servant had, that we all must have as we approach this prophecy of the last days. Because what is my testimony of Jesus saying about the wedding? That he's going to come and that he wants me there with him. That's a glorious invitation. With that, look at verse 11. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Now, we saw a white horse back in chapter 4. The first horseman of the apocalypse was white, and it was symbolic of conquest. Well, here is a pure Christian conquest of the wicked world that has just come crashing down before him. This is the moment of the second coming. I mean, this is like Gandalf riding in on that third day when nobody expected to be saved. This is Christ riding in, conquering on his white horse. No more the, the humble donkey for the triumphal entry. This is the white stallion of the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's finally here. Now, how do we know it's him? Well, looks would, would make it obvious. But it says here, he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. Perfect names for him. I mean, he promised he would come, and now he has. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew, but he himself now, eyes like a flame of fire. Remember how we saw him in Revelation chapter 1? He's returning in that same degree of glory. Crowns, plural, upon his head? Well, yes, if every elder has cast his crown at his feet, this is now king of kings and lord of lords. His name is written, but no one knows it but him. There are some things about Jesus oh, we'll never know until he reveals himself fully unto us. Last line, he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. This was the Word made flesh. But his vesture dipped in blood, no wonder it was granted unto us to wear white at this wedding. It's not that the stains of our sins just magically disappeared. It's that they were transferred to him. He took them upon himself when he trod out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. When he's stained all of his raiment with our blood. There is a glorious role reversal here. This is substitutionary atonement. This is, I'll take your place on the cross so you can take my place under the crown. I'll take the thorn so you can have the throne. I'll wear the red so you can wear the white. This is what Elder Maxwell spoke of as robes of reminding red. 
This is why we know when he comes again, he will wear red robes. In the days before oh, Photoshop made this really easy, I had a student once take the famous Harry Anderson painting of the Second Coming, with all the angels waiting in the wings and Jesus descending there in his white robes. And somehow this student recolorized it. Like I said, before that was easy to do and frequently done. And he gave me the picture and it was, it jolted me, honestly. It was, it felt so sacred, I didn't want to show it in my classes. It just was, there's Jesus wearing my blood. There he is in his robes of red. And yes, they are reminding me of everything I've done wrong. The stains that I should be wearing, and yet he's wearing them for me. So I can wear white on this white wedding day. There's something profound here about the coming of the Word of God. Something so fitting about him coming astride this noble steed. Do you remember the hymn? I think Polly P. Pratt wrote it, if I remember correctly. Jesus, once of humble birth. Because the amazing thing about that hymn is every line compares and contrasts first coming as opposed to second. Jesus, once of humble birth, there's the first. Now in glory comes to earth, there's the second. And the absolute difference between how meek and lowly he was the first time and how glorious and triumphant he will be in the second. How it was lamb for the first coming. It will be lion for the second. In fact, that's one of the reasons that so many of his own countrymen didn't see him as the Messiah when he came. Because so much of the Old Testament prophesies of the second coming, even more than the first. And so they were expecting this version when they got a babe in the manger instead. Jews to this day are skeptical of Jesus because they say he didn't usher in the messianic age. Well, not the first time but he will the second. It's what we've all been waiting for and preparing for. Oh, this word of God was made flesh once. When he returns in the flesh, it will be flesh glorified, resurrected, and the lion will come roaring. Okay, The rider will come having conquered all in his path. With that, verse 14, the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, they got the same kinds of steeds. He is the Lord of hosts after all, right? And hosts means armies. El Señor de los ejércitos, the Lord of the armies. They too were clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Again, thanks to him. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Now, that does have kind of martial imagery, right? The conquering warrior coming in. And yet, what does the sharp sword represent in the armor of God? What does the rod of iron represent in the Tree of Life vision? The JST actually clarifies this and replaces symbol with object, with actual fact, and puts it this way. Out of his mouth proceedeth the word of God, and with it he will smite the nations, and he will rule them with the word of his mouth. That's what the sword is. That's what the rod of iron represents. Not only that, but to explain his choice of wedding colors, it says that he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. That's what we saw back in chapter 14. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh 
a name written. Now this one we do get to read. The other name we don't know until he reveals it, but this one we know. It is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We saw the woman with what was written on her forehead, mystery and Babylon and abomination. Here, what are we seeing written on Christ? Oh, titles whereby we can know him. King of kings, Lord of lords. But where is it written? On his vesture, on his thigh? Somehow Jesus comes to the wedding feast in his own wedding garment. And that garment bears the marks of who he is. It's on his vesture. It's on his thigh. It's a reminder of the word of God. It's a reminder of king and, and Lord and all that he is to each of us. Now, there will be no question the identity of the bridegroom when it's time for the wedding feast. But then chapter 19 of Revelation takes a dramatic turn. It stops us in our tracks. In the middle of the rejoicing over the wedding feast, we learn that there's another feast going, along, going on right alongside it. This is one of the most dramatic juxtapositions you'll find in a book full of them. Remember, to juxtapose is to put things side by side. And the reason you do that is to draw out the differences. I used to do this with my own students, where I take two pieces of construction paper, paper that were both gray, but different shades of gray, but close enough that I would hold, I'd put one on one side of the room, one on the other, and say, what color? And they're like, gray, gray, same shade? They're like, yeah. And it wasn't until I took them off the wall and brought them right next to each other that they realized, oh, not the same. Now, these two are strikingly different. They wouldn't even need this level of juxtaposition. But to break up the chapter at this moment and, and pivot, kind of spin around and realize, wait a minute, there's a second feast going on. And side by side, whoa, the, the choice is placed before us. Which one would you rather attend? Now, the one we just saw is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. The one we're about to see, look at verse 17 and 18. I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. Now, hmm, the supper of the great God, how does this compare to the marriage supper of the Lamb? The fact that fowls are being invited should tell us something. What kind of birds are they? Listen to this. This angel invites the, the birds to come that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, JST interrupts, who fight against the lamb. So that's an important clarification. It's not all men. It's just all who fought against God, both free and bond, both small and great. Now, this is a striking supper. And what's for dinner? Well, the casualties of Armageddon. Remember, this has all been happening. The destruction of the wicked, the fall of Babylon. Can you imagine walking across a battlefield now strewn with the corpses of the dead? And what's going to come as a result of that? Well, scavengers. The ravens and the crows and the Vultures and the buzzards will start buzzing all around these bodies to feast on them. 
this is a scary scene. Uh, Ezekiel talked about the same thing. And so John may be drawing upon Ezekiel. And what Ezekiel was describing is the battle of Gog and Magog. We'll get to that in, later on in, this, in, in Revelation. But to see the final battle that ends it all, this is how Ezekiel describes it. Speak unto every feathered fowl and to every beast of the field. Assemble yourselves and come, gather yourselves that ye may eat flesh and drink blood. Do you remember back in Revelation 18 when it talked about Babylon being a habitation, but also a hold? And when all is said and done, it was a cage, but a cage of what? Did you catch it? It was described as a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Ah, oh, and with the crash of Babylon, can you picture those cages being... The, the, the cage is crashing down and breaking open and all of these hateful, unclean birds, birds of prey, scavengers swooping forth, ready to prey upon the casualties of this great last battle. You see, it's the Lord of hosts coming home from war to be married to a bride that has been preparing herself for him. Here he comes in red robes, blood-stained from the battlefield, but on a glorious white horse, the personification, the embodiment of conquest, of pure conquest. He rides in victorious. There we are, ready to celebrate with him, but already there's a celebration for the scavengers already underway. Again, which feast do you want to attend? Do you want to eat or be eaten? Do you want to be a guest of God or carrion for the birds of prey? Like I said, I don't know if there's any more stark juxtapositions right next to each other. These two feasts going on simultaneously. I hope the choice is crystal clear and I hope we make the right one. With that, verse 19 I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. There's a flashback to all that we've been seeing, Armageddon and all of its aftermath. The beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone and the remnant were slain with the sword or JSD, slain with the word of him that sat upon the horse, which sword, JST, which word proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. This is the same war that's been raging since premortality, but it's finally over. Like I said, this is why the Lord can come triumphantly home to be married to a glorious bride that is worthy of him. You, you get a sense of where we are by the time chapter 19 ends. We have seen Armageddon come and go. We have seen these final battles and the destruction of the wicked. The, the ten virgins have come forth and some were foolish, others were wise. But Christ has come. The second coming has occurred in all of its glory. We have been waiting for it, preparing for it. And it's happened 
What comes next? After second coming, this ushers in the millennial reign. He is king of kings and lord of lords after all. And he's come back to his kingdom, ready to rule over it. That's what you see unfold in chapter 20. Verse 1 through 3. I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Remember earlier on in Revelation, we saw Jesus as the one holding the keys of death and of hell. Keys that could open things and no one could shut them, or shut them and no one could open them. This angel has the key of the bottomless pit. He has a great chain, and we usually associate chains with the adversary. Well, talk about a role reversal. The angel's finally using it now. He laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more. That deception, such a defining sign of the times, but that deception is over. Everyone sees crystal clear again. The light of the world has come. And so the dragon can deceive no one till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. Now that loosing always confused me. You had him tied up. Why on earth would you ever let him out? And the best explanation I ever received was when somebody pointed out that, well, if there's a resurrection of the just and a resurrection of the unjust, if the celestial are raised at the morning of the first resurrection and the terrestrial are raised at some point through the millennium, but the telestial are raised at the end Ah, there are finally people willing to listen to him again. So no wonder the, the adversary is loosed for that little season. Before the millennium was a great battle, Armageddon. At the end of the millennium will be another great battle, Gog and Magog. And so bookended by this thousand-year reign of peace will be wars that make peace all the more pronounced because of that juxtaposition. Here, no more deception? Well, we better hold to the truth we have to the point that we are not deceived once he's given a chance to try one last time. This is the same dragon who's been trying to drag down the stars of heaven ever since the war in heaven that began it all. He's still trying to drag people down in our day. But like I said before, the roles have been reversed and he who always used the chain to bind his prisoners is now bound in one himself. Remember Enoch's vision, Enoch's vision in Moses 7 that he saw Satan and he had a great chain in his hand and he veiled the whole face of the earth with darkness and he looked up and laughed and his angels rejoiced. That verse always gives me the willies. But here it's reversed. How oh, finally the long-awaited time has come where he who chained the world is now chained and he who spread darkness has now been cast into a bottomless pit by the light of the world himself. There's actually something fascinating about the end of 1 Nephi. He's been teaching Isaiah to his brothers. And then the, the book of 1 Nephi ends in chapter 22 with some glorious explanation. And what he was doing in explaining Isaiah helps us make sense of revelation here. This is 1 Nephi 22, verse 13 and 14. See if it helps to elucidate what we've been studying throughout the book of Revelation lately. Nephi says, The blood of that great and abominable church, which is the whore of all the earth. So there's that imagery of the mother of harlots. All that blood shall turn upon their own heads. 
Remember the rivers of blood we saw earlier. And every nation which shall war against thee, O house of Israel, shall be turned one against another. Sounds a lot like Armageddon. And they shall fall into the pit which they digged to ensnare the people of the Lord. How's that for being thrown into the bottomless pit himself? All that fight against Zion shall be destroyed, and that great whore who hath perverted the right ways of the Lord, yea, that great and abominable church, shall tumble to the dust, and great shall be the fall of it. Oh, there's the alas, alas, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. But then notice what Nephi says near the end of that chapter. First Nephi 22, verse 23, For the time speedily shall come that all churches which are built up to get gain... How's that for the merchant city? And all those who are built up to get power over the flesh. Ah, there's the beast. And those that are built up to become popular in the eyes of the world. That could be Babylon in any of its guises. And those who seek the lusts of the flesh and the things of the world and to do all manner of iniquity. Hmm, there's the mother of harlots. Yea, in fine, all those who belong to the kingdom of the devil are they who need fear and tremble and quake. They are those who must be brought low in the dust. They are those who must be consumed as stubble. And this is according to the words of the prophet. Now, Nephi was getting those words from the prophet Isaiah. Oh, John seemed to know those words well himself. And so here, painting pictures of the destruction of Babylon in all of its aspects. Oh, it's all happening. The millennium has come. Final judgment is being passed and a judgment of guilty has been rendered to Babylon. That makes sense of verse 4 then, back to Revelation 20. I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. This is just like those souls that we saw under the altar in the fifth seal. These are they who overcame. They overcame a world that thought it had overcome them. The world passed its harsh judgment upon them. Well, now it's time for judgment to be passed on them. So verse 5 and 6, The rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. Like I said, telestial aren't resurrected until the end. Those that were resurrected at the beginning there, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. Or as the JST puts it, blessed and holy are they who have part in the first resurrection. That's a very minor detail. It went from he to they. But that to me makes all the difference. This is not going to be some lonely party up there. Okay, this, So many multitudes there in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. These are priests serving under the great high priest of good things to come. These are kings, lowercase k, serving under the king of kings himself. They get to join the anointed one, having been anointed themselves. That's what kings and priests have happened to them. Something beautiful here. Then verse 7 and 8, when the thousand years are expired, so this was a very fast run through through the millennium, when that thousand years is done, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. 
just as we saw prophesied at the beginning of this chapter. He shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. So one last shot. Gog and Magog. That's how we refer to this war. To gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. As I said before, the millennium is bookended by these catastrophic battles. If you think about the Book of Mormon as our scale model of the last days, and we saw the destruction of the wicked in 35.8, we see the coming of Christ in 35.11, it's followed by his magnificent post-mortal ministry among the Nephites, followed by what we could call a mini-millennium, 200 years of peace. That's the first half of 4th Nephi. It flies by very quickly in the Book of Mormon, just like it does here in Revelation chapter 20. But then what happens? All the good that came of the coming of Christ, all the strength of Zion ends up going up in smoke as the people descend back into pride and conflict until the books of Mormon and Moroni show the, the final collapse of the Nephite civilization. It's as if their Nephi 8 were Armageddon and Mormon and Moroni were Gog and Magog. And what's interesting when you read the second half of 4th Nephi to see what led to the downfall. I mean, they had Zion. It was one heart, one mind, dwelling in righteousness with no poor among them. It was awesome. And then what happens that led to their demise? It's interesting to see it side by side that in 4th Nephi chapter 1, verse 25 and 26, you see competition and class division develop again. Oh, the beast has come back out from hiding in verse 26 through 29, you see false churches that justify wickedness. Ah, there's the whore, the mother of harlots that has come forth on that beast to convince people that what they're doing isn't wrong after all. How's that for a seductive message? And also, 4th Nephi, verse 23 and 24, prosperity and greed leads them down to corruption. And there's the merchant city being rebuilt upon the ashes of its old version. To me, it's tragic that there you see in the last half of 4th Nephi the downfall of Zion because they went back to Babylon, spiritually speaking, with beast and harlot and merchant city, as always. It's always there. With that, go back to Revelation 20 and look at verse 9. They went up on the breadth of the earth, encompass the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city. There's been a wicked city, oh, alas, alas, fallen Babylon, but there is a beloved city that the saints have been trying to build, the new Jerusalem. We will see that clearly in a moment. But here they are, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Was that for one last, yeah, we, I'm glad the Lord of hosts is on our side, okay? He wins. The devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And with that, we can finally say it is finished. No more deception. No more prowling beasts and seductive harlots. No more merchant cities buying and selling the souls of men. We're done. Not only have we outlived Armageddon. We've made it through Gog and Magog. Final test. 
to see if we had been lulled into a false sense of security through that millennial reign? Or do we truly want to live that way eternally? We made it through the, the trial run. We proved our priorities. And now the earth that had been cleansed at the second coming and gone from a telestial environment to a terrestrial sphere is now ready to be fully cleansed and fully celestialized. This earth can become the celestial kingdom of God. Watch to see how it unfolds in the very next chapter. But here in chapter 20, look at verse 11 and 12. Because now that the devil is finally defeated, now that the war has completely ended, we are prepared for final judgment. John says that he saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them, no place for the beast, no place for the false prophet, no place for the dragon or the mother of harlots. They're gone, and we never have to worry about them again. We get to worship before this great white throne. And it's there that John says that he saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Now this great white throne, it's a famous image. In fact, famous enough to stick in the minds of pioneers. When they came to Utah, and when they were eventually sent south by Brigham Young, when they got to what is currently Zion National Park, and just blown away by Angel's Landing and the Narrows. And it's, it's an amazing national park if you've never been. But there is one place amidst all these red rocks where there is this massive white mountain looming up above them all, almost looking down on the red rock beneath it. And guess what the pioneers decided to name that mountain? The Great White Throne. They knew their Revelation chapter 20. And a picture of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the God of all creation, looking down upon all that he could survey, ready to pass judgment. Now, what kind of judgment is being passed? Notice what's being opened before him. It says that the books were opened. The books, plural. But then another book, which is the book of life. And as I try to picture this in my mind, I wonder what it would be like to have my book of life open before God and for him to be able to read every word, to pour over every misspelling, every clumsy construction, every awkward piece of editing, and for him to pull out the, the red pen I've seen plenty of papers I've written over the years with the bleeding red as a professor has gone through it with a fine-tooth comb. Well, one of the things that frustrates me sometimes about having my writing judged, they're always more right than I am, but one of the things that's hard part about that is that writing is so subjective. And it's like I could turn it into you and get an F and turn it into somebody else and get an A. Maybe not that bad. Uh, but you understand what I mean? What standard are you judging me by? And I think, I think that's why rubrics can be helpful. And to know, like, okay, what's the measuring stick? 
Well, I wonder if that's why he opened these other books. Yeah, open up your book of life and see how you live. But then open the books that show God's truth in all their beautiful purity. Let's open the New Testament like we've been doing all year long. Let's open the Old like we did last year. Let's open the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants. For, for Muslims, let's open the Quran. Let's open the Vedas for the Hindus. Let's open the words of the Buddha or Confucius for those that said they were trying to follow those truths. And let's see how you measure up. We call them the standard works because they are the standards by which our works will be judged. We call it the canon because a canon is a measuring stick. That's what the word means. And to measure our lives, our book of life, against those books of Scripture and to see if we fall short. By the way, I am eternally grateful that in those same books that require my righteousness, repentance is also taught. And it is by repenting of my sins that I can edit what's been written in the other book so that it's not bleeding with red ink, but it's been washed clean in red blood. I hope that makes sense. I wonder sometimes about, well, I'll put it this way. I'm amazed by computers that seem to know us so well because they have traced every keystroke. And if you searched for something to buy at one point, in the back of the, of the Internet's mind, I wonder if they still want that. And they keep sending targeted ads right to you. Well, if computers and the Internet seem to know us so well, imagine our own book of life where every keystroke is tracked, every search term is recorded, and it knows us inside and out. Imagine our mind being that kind of computer memory and to just upload it all and then upload all the truth that God has ever revealed to us and see how they line up. Again, thank heaven for repentance, but I pray that we can turn to the Lord so that book number two approximates all the books of truth as closely as we can with his help. Then the chapter ends, verse 13 through 15. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. Oh, they were judged too. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Interesting that at final judgment, death finally dies. Captivity is finally taken captive. Christ has overcome all things fully and finally and forever. Chapter 20 is Judgment Day. We see it portrayed so clearly, so graphically. Again, we understand degrees of glory. We understand the infinite mercy of God and that even those of telestial levels of living will be given a kingdom of glory it's a far cry from a lake of fire and brimstone. But in terms of working upon the human heart, playing upon the emotion, well, I'm grateful for the stark symbolism that John has given to us. I hope it moves us to action, namely repentance. From there, though, we can see chapter 21 with its glorious depiction of a celestial 
earth. The earth here is finally going to receive its paradisical glory, as promised in the 10th article of faith. It's here we see the ultimate construction project finally completed, namely the kingdom of God, also known as the new Jerusalem. For this, read verse 1 and 2, and then let's sing a song, shall we? It says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is post-millennial, right? This is post-judgment day. This is all is said and done. We have a place for the, the faithful to be gathered home. It's a new heaven, a new earth. And why do you need new? Because the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. There was no more sea. And remember, sea is the symbol of chaos. So that's all behind us. It is peace again. I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Oh, we're back to the marriage feast, aren't we? The marriage of Christ and his church, the marriage of Jehovah and his people Israel. They're ready to move into their new home. And this is no starter home. <laughs> this is the celestial world. This is the new Jerusalem. This is Zion from above, meaning Zion from below. This is Zion brought, re uh, reuniting with Zion built. This is the answer to the prayer of section 65. May the kingdom of God go forth so that the kingdom of heaven may come. Well, here it's come. And what a city it's come to. Now, the song I want us to sing is called The Holy City, because that's what John is depicting here. It was written by Stephen Adams long ago, and it's an absolute masterpiece. Go and find this one and listen to it, too. And it, whenever I do, I'm reminded of singing it at a concert that the Jerusalem Center students put on for the friends that we'd made during our semester studying there in the Holy Land. Let me read you these three verses because it's a fitting preview of what we're going to see in chapter 21. In the song, there are three verses that describe Jerusalem at three different times. Okay? Follow along and you'll get a sense of what they symbolize. First verse. Last night I lay a-sleeping. There came a dream so fair. I stood in old Jerusalem beside the temple there. I heard the children singing, and ever as they sang, methought the voice of angels from heaven in answer rang. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, lift up your gates and sing. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to your king. Now, if that's old Jerusalem and the rejoicing that would take place there by the temple, fast forward and let's see the second verse. At a darker day. And then methought my dream was changed. The streets no longer rang. Hushed were the glad hosannas the little children sang. The sun grew dark with mystery. The morn was cold and chill as the shadow of a cross arose upon a lonely hill. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, hark how the angels sing. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to your king. Now oh, this city of peace, Jerusalem, was now the site of the crucifixion of Christ. To see that, to behold it before you, what have you done to your king? What happened to the hosannas we shouted just one week earlier on Palm Sunday? What will become of it? Well, what will become of it once it has been fully purged of its iniquity? 
That's what we're waiting for in the third verse. And it describes what John is depicting in Revelation 21. Once again, the scene was changed. New earth there seemed to be. I saw the holy city beside the tideless sea. The light of God was on its streets. The gates were opened wide. And all who would might enter. And no one was denied. No need of moon or stars by night, nor sun to shine by day. It was the new Jerusalem that would not pass away. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, sing, for the night is o'er. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna forevermore. I remember belting out those words on stage there at the Jerusalem Center before an audience filled with Locals, natives of that place. An audience that was half Jewish and half Muslim. Half Israeli and half Palestinian. To have them all under the same roof with a bunch of Christian college kids singing to them about their holy city. When will we open the gates wide enough that no one will be denied entrance? Such a fitting question considering all that's going on currently in the Holy Land. When will we receive the new heaven and the new earth? Well, better question for us. When will we really start building the new Jerusalem? In verse 3 and 4, John says, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. That heavenly temple has descended on earth. He's moving in. This is bride and bridegroom after all, right? It's with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Do you remember what Emmanuel means? It means God with us. And all of this language here in verse 3 and 4 is so emmanuel focused. He's here. He's among us. He's with us and we're with him. And what will he do now that he's here? This celestialized earth that's prepared for his coming. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. We saw that promise earlier in Revelation. We talked about the difference between offering someone a Kleenex and actually wiping tears from their eyes. The Lord will do the latter in such a personal and intimate way. And why will he wipe away tears at this point? Oh, because there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Can you imagine life where suffering is a thing of the past? It's like, oh, pain, suffering, death, sorrow, crying. Oh, that was so last season. I mean, come on, get with the times. <laughs> Those are out of fashion. And what's in? Oh, this is a season that will never come to a close. The clothing line is fine linen, pure and white. Oh, there's some dashes in red, but only for him who wears the reminding robes. And no tear stains on anyone's garments. All that's behind us. No wonder in verse 5, he that sat upon the throne could say, Behold, I make all things new what he does. He's the author and the finisher. He's the renewer and restorer. 
he makes all things new. And he said unto me, write. So this is worth putting in your little black book too. For these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. So yes, I started this, but I finished it too. It is done. Write that down, John. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Yeah, be sure to record that as well. They will never have to thirst again. They can bank on that. They can count on it completely. Because I've done my work. Can you imagine celestial glory along these lines? No more tears. No more thirst. No more sorrow. No more solitude. The Lord is with us. And we're with him. He then says in verse 7 and 8, He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. But, here's the other side, the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, they shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now the second half of that long list all makes sense. The abominable, the murderers, the liars and whoremongers and so on. But the fearful and unbelieving Hmm, that should stop us in our tracks. No wonder Jesus says in the Doctrine and Covenants, fear not and doubt not. Just look unto me in every thought. It's going to be okay. We have to overcome our fears, and with faith we can. We have to overcome our doubt. And again, with faith, we are able to do so. So, overcome fear and disbelief, along with all the abominable things that he listed after that. Verse 9 and 10, there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, full of the seven last plagues. Oh, it's been a while since I've seen you. Done with destruction? What have you been up to lately? Well, they talked with me, saying, come hither, and I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. That's what we really wanted to do all along. We wanted to be tour guides, not destroying angels. Okay, We want people to be ready for this. That's why we sent the gospel forth to, and cried repentance so people could actually be prepared. From the get-go, what we've been trying to do is bring everyone's attention to this celestial city. And you're ready for the view, so come. Well, let me show you this. He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Ah, so it really is Zion brought just as much as it's Zion built. This is the rainbow reconnecting heaven and earth. And the city of Enoch returning. This is the celestial glory descending upon a newly celestialized earth. How what a city to build. Here's the description in verse 11 through 14. It has the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Can you picture the stones in the Jaredite barges, touched by the finger of the Lord himself? Well, this whole city shines just as brilliantly, clear as crystal. It had a wall, great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. On the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. 
and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Now think about every symbolic part of this celestial city. How many foundations? Twelve? Ah, the twelve apostles of the Lamb? Remember what Paul said to the Ephesians, you are built upon a foundation of prophets and apostles. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. They grow out from him. But that's the foundation of whereupon all this is built. Please, we must not underestimate the importance of prophets and apostles. If the wise man built his house upon the rock, there's no one wiser than the Lord. And he built his city upon a rock of prophets and apostles. He is the rock upholding all of them. But to think about the importance he places upon his servants, whether by mine own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. How's our construction? Are we building on them or trying to find other places? Oh, it's just shifting sand if we leave prophets and apostles behind. Also, this talk of walls, great and high, but also gates to open the way through them. Now, when it spoke of the 12 tribes of the house of of Israel, oh, you've all got a gate with your name written on it. Talk about being invited in. It's not just the guest list. It's on the foundation. It's on the gate itself. I'm, I'm written right there, engraved in the stone. God really does want me in. Well, then why have a wall? Doesn't, it seems like there's things he wants out. Well, that's an interesting contrary, too. That in the celestial city, there is a wall, but there are also gates. You biology majors, this would be a semi-permeable membrane. <laughs> you students of the Jaredite barges, this would be a hole that you can open and close. Because life is a process of deciding what to bring in from the world and what to lock out. There needs, we need to be in the world, but not of the world. We need to know what to, where to put our walls and where to open our gates. And here, these gates are open wide. Remember, that was part of the song. No one is denied. If I keep reading, you'll see more of that. Verse 15, he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city. We talked about measuring sticks already, the canon and the standard works. Well, let's measure the city and see how it measures up. We're also going to measure the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And here's what they found. The city lieth four square. And if it's square, then it's got right angles, and every street is a straight path. There's no winding roads here. No, this is built to exact specifications. This is compass and square. So the four-square city, the length is as large as the breadth. But something else interesting, too. He measured the city with the reed 12,000 furlongs. If you do the math there, that's 1,500 miles. This is a massive city. It covers half of the United States, if you were to measure it that way. But the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. So it's not just four square. It's cubed. It's as high as it is long as it is broad. And wait, wait, you said 1,500 miles? So not only is it 1,500 miles from east to west and 1,500 miles from north to south, it's 1,500 miles from top to bottom? I mean, the International Space Station would be like passing through kind of the middle stories of the celestial city. Now, again, if we're thinking symbolically here, 
What is he describing? This is a city that joins east and west. That's saying something. Since so much of culture seems to be, to be divided along those lines. This is a city that joins north and south. Oh, Civil War participants would be grateful for that. More importantly, this is a city that joins heaven and earth. That's how high it is. And so Jacob's ladder now become <laughs> Jehovah's cube to come up and come down for God to be with us, for us to be with God. There's one other piece of symbolism here that you can't miss. And that's the fact that we have already seen in Scripture construction based on a perfect cube. And that's the Holy of Holies in the temple. This whole book has revolved around temple scenes. This is a temple text. And when the entire world becomes a holy of holies, no wonder the earth itself becomes the throne room of the king. This is our opportunity to come boldly to the throne of grace and stay for good. There's room for everyone. Okay? This is the celestial earth. This is the holy of holies. From there, verse 17, he measured the wall thereof, 144 cubits. Another good symbolic number there, right? 12 times 12, 12 apostles times 12 tribes of Israel, 144 cubits according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like unto clear glass. And if the whole city is clear glass, imagine a community where nothing needs to be hidden. If it's pure gold, imagine a community that never falls into social decay. Now this is purified by Christ. This is an eternal city. This is the city of God. In verse 19, the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a chrysoprasus, the eleventh a jacinth, the twelfth an amethyst. I have no idea if I pronounced those correctly, by the way. I'm no, <laughs> no jeweler, but God seems to be. He knows the names of every one. And yes, those were the names of the stones set in the breastplate of judgment of the Israelite high priest. I told you temple texts left and right. But those were the stones that were engraven with the names of the tribes of Israel, suggesting that every one of God's house, every member of the house of Israel, is a precious stone in his sight. That's how we're going to build this city, by bringing everyone in. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. That's where we get the idea of pearly gates. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. That's where we get the idea of streets paved with gold. But if it's gold like transparent glass, gold isn't transparent. Ooh, but fire kind of is. So again, to think about these gates of pearl and streets of fire and cleansing and purity and value and worth, it's similar to the vision of the celestial kingdom that Joseph Smith had, as recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 137. Oh, I, I want this to be more than vision. We need to build based on this vision and create an earth of that kind of purity.
and transparency. In verse 22, this is an odd detail about the city. Considering how fast President Nelson is building temples as far as the eye can see. In the celestial city, John said, I saw no temple therein. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. Now, when John says he saw no temples, I imagine he probably had Roman temples in mind. Dedicated to the Roman pantheon or to the Caesar in Rome. And talk about oh, a pantheon of no importance. Talk about the lowercase g gods of the Greeks and Romans put in their place by the God of the universe. So yeah, no need for temples there. But even in our case, when we know of temples as the house of the Lord, do you really need to keep building them once the earth itself becomes God's house? I don't sense a need to, to distinguish the architecture here. The whole place is a temple. We are in... I mean, do you set up temples inside the temple? Do you need houses of God when the whole world has become the Holy of Holies? If, and again, I'm not trying to cast any shade on, on the temple as we build them. But speaking of shade... Doesn't sound like there'll need there'll be any, uh, because there's no shadow anywhere. It's light everywhere because the light of the Lord is there. To the point that even the sun and the moon and the stars feel a little bit worthless. <laughs> you ever been in a room so bright because of the sunlight that you t can turn the lights on or off and it makes no difference? It doesn't need any artificial illumination. Well, imagine the sun itself being the extra that isn't adding anything because the light of the world is there. To have lesser lights eclipsed by the light of the world, in some ways as a teacher, I know how little my light is. And when the celestial kingdom comes, I'm not teaching classes anymore. I'm learning. I'm sitting on the front row, just soaking it in. And I don't mind being obsolete by then. If the sun and moon already are. Oh, to have my little light eclipsed by the light of the Lamb. I can't wait. Bring it on. By then, verse 25 through 27, this chapter can come to its glorious conclusion. The gates of it shall not be shut at all by day. Oh, so they're only closed at night, huh? Well, keep reading. For there shall be no night there. Oh, so these gates are always open wide. Yeah, didn't we just sing about that? No one is denied entrance. Again, that's why it was so glorious to sing that to a room full of locals that seem to feel the need to shut their gates against one another. That's not how God feels. They shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. You see, to me, that's what makes the open gates so interesting. We don't have to close them. People will know 
within themselves whether or not they want to enter. Those who defile, those who work abominations, no, it's their own level of discomfort that acts as a barrier. They don't want to come in. Believe me, they've been invited from the very beginning. I, we just hope that people will feel comfortable. We'll make the changes to become celestial people so they know they can move into the celestial city. It's, it's been built here for you. The gates are wide open. Please come in. With that, the book of Revelation comes to its final chapter. And what a fitting end, not only for this book, but for the entire New Testament, for the entire Bible. We'll see at the end of this chapter, uh, I'll make, we'll make the point that this book wasn't assembled the way it is today when John wrote these words. There was no Bible yet. But since it speaks of the end of the world and the last days and the coming of Christ and the millennial reign and the celestial kingdom, no better book to put at the end of the Bible than this one. Okay? This is where it all comes to its glorious conclusion that is no conclusion. The end that hath no end. This is celestial glory. Verse 1 and 2. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Those of us from colder weather climates would be shocked by a tree giving fruit year-round. But those who've been blessed to live in <laughs> warmer climes, oh yeah, why... Why would you ever... There is no off-season. It's always a glorious day of growth. And so, 12 manner of fruits, that's pretty amazing too. Imagine every kind of fruit imaginable, and it's right there growing on the same tree. The fruits of the Spirit in all their glorious diversity growing there on the tree of life. There is a river of pure water. By the way, are we sensing Lehi's dream? Coming back to that, if we've overcome the great and spacious building, no wonder Nephi and John saw so many similar things and kind of tag-teamed some of the writing of it. But to overcome the great and spacious building, to avoid the horror of all the earth, to come to the tree of life and rejoice in its fruit. This is not only tree of life, excuse me, this is not only Lehi's dream, this is Garden of Eden. We left because we partook of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil, but we return by partaking of the fruit of the tree of life. By now, the fall has been reversed. Cherubim and the flaming sword that at one point were saying, none shall pass, are now saying, all can enter. The flaming sword is the word of God, and it's inviting us to come. And did you catch where the river's coming from? Right from underneath the throne of God. Now, if the throne is in the Holy of Holies, that's the temple. Remember Ezekiel's vision? We studied this last year, where Ezekiel sees in vision the temple of God, and there is a river flowing out from underneath its foundation. This is the symbolism behind the architecture, of the landscape architecture, of the Laie Hawaii Temple, of the Oakland, California Temple, 
There's some beautiful temples. Uh, uh, Idaho Falls, if you angle things right, it looks a lot like that too. And to picture these, these living waters flowing out from the temple, from the throne of God. In Ezekiel's case, it flowed east. That's where the Kidron River goes, by the way. Yeah, that's what the river that runs through Gethsemane. There's living water. There's healing waters. But it flows east to the Dead Sea, making that sea not so dead anymore. It brings life everywhere it goes. That's what Ezekiel saw in vision. That's what John is seeing in vision as well. It's the same idea here. And so to think about living water, tree of life, the leaves of the tree providing for the healing of the nation, how's that for an olive branch or an olive leaf? In verse 3, there shall be no more curse. I told you the fall was reversed. Remember the song, the beautiful Christmas song, Joy to the World by Isaac Watts? No more will sin or sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He'll come and make the blessings flow far as the curse was found. See, the curse is over. The fall is, is finished. And all those thorns, yeah, there's no more weeding to be done. Okay, no more sin or sorrow growing anywhere. The, the tears have all been wiped away. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. There shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Oh, for anyone who's ever been scared of the dark, it sounds like the celestial kingdom's the perfect place. The fall is a thing of the past. Darkness and shadows have been swallowed up in glorious light. Everything has been atoned for. And we're back in the presence of God. In verse 6, he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. We've had that repeated to us several times in today's material. Just constant reassurance. This is true, what we're studying. Hold to it. The Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. And that's the role you've been playing here, John. Thank you for writing it all down. Write this too while you're at it. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Oh, the Lord himself seems to have an eye on these words, wanting to affirm them and reassure us that they're all true and come from him. So come, because I'm coming and coming quickly. It's almost as if he's trying to help us hold on to things that will get us through the last days. Oh, you're so close. We've just got a few more a few more ticks of the clock before the game is over, and you've got to remember these plays. They're true and faithful. Hold on to them. In verse 8 and 9, I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. John seems to be pretty quick on his, on his feet, or in this case, quick on his knees. <laughs> so eager to, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, and, and I worship, and he's like, well, 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 there's only one wor worth worshiping here. It, it isn't me. I'm more like you, and you're more like me, and neither one of us is quite like God, but he's working on that. 
be patient in the process. And then verse 10. This messenger, mere tour guide, but intent on not standing in the way of the main attraction, says this unto John. Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book. So don't shut things down. Don't close them up. For the time is at hand. Go ahead and keep the book open. I mean, people are going to be living on its pages soon enough, so might as well just leave it out for everyone to read. And make sure this is written in it too, so people will know what they're dealing with. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. The law of the harvest seems to be engraven on this book. We do reap what we've sown. So how will you live as we wrap everything up here? Again, the Lord repeats, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. So he's just around the corner. Please remain vigilant and valiant to the very end. He's writing his book. At the same time, we're writing ours. And those books will someday be put side by side to pass our judgment. Verse 13, who will that judgment come from? I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life. Which is an odd way of saying it. Right to the tree of life? No, 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 no. I I don't deserve any of this. I have no right to it. It was granted unto me to wear white at the wedding. I have no right to the tree of life. Well, this is a gift God has promised us. And because of his covenant relationship, if we qualify for his promise, then yes, you have right. Eat this fruit with confidence. And then, back to the text, Enter in through the gates into the city. Come right in. You don't have to sneak in. You don't have to hop a wall. You don't have to bribe the doorman. Oh no. Come right in. Come boldly to the throne of grace. You belong here. You don't belong out there. For without, outside the walls, are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. Yeah, no wonder we want to go in. And stay in. That's why the walls are there, despite the fact the gates are open. There is definitely a difference between the inside and the outside. But people tend to just gravitate wherever they feel most comfortable. And I pray, the Lord prays, that we feel comfortable coming in. Verse 16, he then says, I, Jesus... And now it's crystal clear who's been talking to us. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. Uh, Those seven churches we addressed most directly back in chapter 2 and chapter 3. This message has been directly addressed to all of them ever since. The whole church of God, wherever it might be and whenever it might be. Who's it coming from? Jesus. And how does he introduce himself? He'd already called himself Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, first and last. Here he says, I am the root and the offspring of David. For that, you've got to go back and restudy Isaiah chapter 11. This stump in the ground, but it's, it's regrown. 
but to have shoots and branches growing out of this. Jesus is bringing new life. He was the source of it all from the beginning. So root and offspring of David and the bright and morning star. That's Venus, the first star to appear after a night of darkness. I love that the Lord uses that metaphor in introducing himself to us here. I'll read the book of Revelation. Worse yet, live through it. And yeah, it seems like a night of darkness. But don't worry. The bright and morning star is about to rise. And with it, it promises the coming of the day dawn. Be patient. He's coming. You can count on that. And so, the spirit and the bride say, come. What a beautiful one-word invitation. The spirit wants you here. The bride wants you to be a part of her. So come. Let him that heareth say, come. So if you heard the invitation, then spread it even further. You heard the word come. Well, it wasn't just for you. Come with everyone else right alongside you. Everyone come. Let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. I love this passage because there these echoes of invitation. Just come, please. I beg of you. It's not us banging on this locked door of heaven and please let me in. It's the Lord pleading with us to enter. He's made that possible. He has set before us an open door that no man can close. As long as we don't close our heart to his call. So please come. I've heard that invitation myself. I'm now extending it to all of you. Please come. Join the Spirit. Join the Bride. If you're thirsty, and I know we all are, then come for the living water. This is where it flows from. This is the actual source. Now verse 18, he changes gears for just a moment before getting back to this same glorious invitation. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. And this book is the book of Revelation. Remember, the Bible hasn't been assembled yet. It's all these different scrolls. In fact, most of the New Testament hasn't even been written yet. But this book has been. We're now in its final verses. And if you've heard the words of the prophecy of this book of Revelation, then please heed this warning. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And, other side, if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life, and out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Once again, repeating that very specific language. Do not add or take away from the book of Revelation. Why? Well, because this book is so richly symbolic that if you tweak things, you're going to mess things up. There are some places, well, you picture some, some books that might be more carelessly written. And if you missed a chapter or uh, messed something up here and there, there was a little, it was a, long, a little long-winded in this part. That describes me constantly. I'm sorry. Uh, and so if you were to take parts out, not a big deal. You just tighten things up and you, this, this could use a good editor. But where something, where John seems to have poured over every word and phrase, he has poured his heart and soul into these symbols. And this book 
I hope over the last three weeks we have sensed what a masterpiece of scripture this book really is. That if I were the editor, I would leave it untouched. I would not add to it. I would not take from it. I'm just hoping I understand it well enough and I wouldn't even know what to, what to add or take away. That makes sense? Now, again, the, the bummer of this is that our wonderfully well-meaning Christian brothers and sisters who kind of assume the Bible... Well, I read a book on, on fundamentalists and they said... And it, it described them as people who believe that the Bible descended from heaven like a sacred meteor. Like it was there. All of these books already assembled. God wrote every single word. He dictated the punctuation, everything, and then presented it all whole, complete, and finished. And that is not what happened throughout human history. There are divine and human fingerprints all over the text. And by the time John is writing these words, the Bible itself has yet to be assembled. That's 100 years plus in the future. Again, with some books not even having been written yet. It's unfortunate for... Oh, accuracy's sake, that it comes in the very last verses of the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. Because it makes people think, oh, see, Bible's untouched, it's perfect, it's inerrant, and don't mess with it. Now, many of us ran into people like that in the mission field that would pull out Revelation 22 to say, ah, see, Book of Mormon, you broke the rule. Dr. Covenants, you broke the rule again. Really great price. You're on a roll for breaking the rules. And for us, it's, well, you didn't quite understand the rule. There is a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, after all, where Moses says, Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. That sounds a lot like Revelation 22. And if Moses meant that at the end of Deuteronomy, then do we just chuck all the other prophets and writings from the Old Testament? And are we, we off limits from a New Testament from the get-go? Hope not. Our wonderful Christian friends certainly wouldn't think so. So you kind of have to understand what Moses is getting at in Deuteronomy 4. And along the same lines, you've got to understand where John is coming from in Revelation 22. It's this book which comes from God in this form. So please leave it alone. To me, there's actually a funnier way to respond. And that's with section 20 of the Doctrine and Covenants. This constitution revelation of the church. At, at its, the day of its founding. And in it, in a book, well, a revelation that is soon to be canonized in a book of Scripture, listen to what the church admits. This is DNC 20, verse 35. And we know that these things are true, these revelations that we have received, the, the counsel that God has given to his servant Joseph. We know they're true. We also know they are according to the revelations of John, neither adding to nor diminishing from the prophecy of his book or the Holy Scriptures, or the revelations of God, which shall come hereafter by the gift and power of the Holy Ghost, the voice of God, or the ministering of angels. Now, I can't help but laugh with that verse, because it's basically calling our attention to this so-called prohibition at the end of the Bible against anything additional. When people throw that verse in my face, it's like, this is not the first time anybody's done that. And in fact, it didn't come as a surprise to Joseph Smith and the early saints either. They were Bible believers and you picture these revelations coming, and they're writing them down and recording them, and they're soon to canonize them. And it's like, wait a minute, are we going afoul of John's warning? And they're like, no. 
We're fully aware of it. John is fully aware of it. In fact, John was the one that came to help restore the Aaronic priesthood last year. Excuse me, the Melchizedek priesthood last year. So no, he's, we're good. We're good with John. John and Joseph are good friends. But here the irony, it's like, no, this isn't adding scripture. At least not in the way John was forbidding. I've sometimes said the canon is like a box that has a certain shape, but not a set density. And as long as additional scripture fits in the box, you know how folders can either come in letter size or legal size? As long as it's the right shape, it fits the other books of scripture that are contained in the canon. Uh, it's part of the cloud of witnesses. And they all look at each other and say, okay, yes, I see where you're coming from. I agree. Sometimes we're proving contraries, but it's all part of the same great whole. So does Nephi fit in there? Does Joseph Smith fit in there? Does the book of Enoch or Moses fit in there? Yes. So we are not changing the shape of the canon. We are only increasing its density by inviting in additional witnesses of the same truth that came from God. You understand the analogy? What I love here is, yeah, this isn't, even while we're adding scripture, this isn't adding scripture in the wrong way. Uh, yeah, and I guess that goes not only for this edition of Scripture, but for all the other stuff that God is surely going to add from here on out. That's the way he says it, right? It's the prophecy of his book. It's the Holy Scriptures. It's the revelation of God which shall come hereafter from all kinds of different means. Holy Ghost, voice of God, ministering of angels. Man, God's pretty open to all kinds of things as long as it fits in the box, as long as it doesn't alter the shape of the canon. You got it? Again, I, I laugh at DNC 20, verse 35. It's almost in your face. Anyone who's throwing Revelation 22 in our face. We're not adding in the wrong way. Now, it's with that that John can go back to what he was saying just two verses before. Before he interrupted himself and cautioned anyone from messing with his actual writing. What had he been saying before? Oh, yes, come. Come unto Christ. This is the exact way that the Book of Mormon ends. In Moroni 10, come unto Christ and be perfected in him. So the spirit and the bride say, come. If you've heard that invitation, then extend that invitation to others. Just please come running. The gates are opened wide. It's with that that he wants to end this book because he wants to end it with that invitation. Now, verse 20 and 21, though, the Lord wants to get the, the last word in. And this Alpha and Omega, this bright and morning star that has been talking to John, wants to talk to us all. And this is what he says in verse 20 and 21. John writes, He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. And there's a period right there after verse 20. If it were me, I would end it right there. Let the Lord get the last word. He said he would come. And what a fitting grand finale of this book of Scripture. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Promising that he would come and reveal himself to the world. End it. Period. Right there. Put the book down. But ah, I'm not the author. John is. And John, oh, he can't help himself. He has to add two last things. Now, the very last thing is 
in keeping with the second great commandment. He just loves people. He loves us. And so what does he say at the very end? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And then he gives us his final amen. Oh, knowing what we're going to go through, if we're going to live through the chapters of the Revelation, then yes, we're going to need all the help we can get. We need the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We all do. And that's what John is offering us. But there was one other thing he said between Christ's promise of quickly coming and John's hope that the grace of God would see us through until he comes. And it's simply these five words. And they're five of the best words I've ever read from John. I see his beautiful, beloved heart poking through. Right after Jesus said, surely I come quickly, John responds. He can't help himself. And says, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Can you picture this celestial impatience on his part? He who was promised by the Lord... You can stay and continue to bring souls unto me until I come again. And here the Lord has told him, I'm coming quickly. And, and John just wants to hold him to his word. Lord, you said you'd come. Please do. Don't wait a second longer than you have to. Don't, I know you have to extend the time so people can have a chance to repent of their sins but not a moment longer. Please come and come quickly. Come to a world that is in desperate need of you. Come and rescue the saints and martyrs from all that they are facing. Come and replace darkness with light. Come and end the world of wickedness to bring in thy celestial kingdom. Everything good will come with thee, the author of all goodness. I pray, John is saying, that this night of darkness may come to an end, and if you are the morning star, then let the sun rise soon. Shining from the east to the west, heralding a day of glory with the coming of Christ. My dear friends, I hope you've fallen in love with the book of Revelation over the past month. I hope it doesn't scare you away from your scriptures. I hope it startles you away from sin. I hope it invites you back to its pages over and over again so that you can see where you are and where you need to be. What page are we on? Well, it all depends on how we're living. But to know what lies ahead gives me hope for whatever we have to endure while we build the new Jerusalem. It's all going to be worth it. Now, by way of quick review, to remind us of some of the things that the Lord has taught us over these last eight chapters, let me give to you my list of one-liners that keeps me reading. But I also want to give you something at the end of this, and that would be a a final juxtaposition of so many of the dualistic symbols that John has given us throughout the book of Revelation, start to finish. I'm sure there are some that I've forgotten, but if you can see them side by side, they are meant to work upon us in a particular way.
So that's where we'll finish today and finish this year. But quick review from chapters 15 to 22. A sea of glass mingled with fire. And they sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Upon her head was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. These have one mind, and they shall give their power and strength unto the beast. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen, a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins. Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. The fine linen is the righteousness of saints. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Behold, I make all things new. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And they shall see his face, that they may have right to the tree of life. I am the root and the offspring of David, and the bright and morning star. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus.
we will find ourselves offering that same prayer, that same plea, once we know who it is that promised to come and save us. How well do we know the Savior? How intent are we at coming unto him? You see, the purpose of the book of Revelation, again, is not merely to lay out some kind of chronological timeline, but rather to invite us to come unto Christ wherever on that timeline we might be living. It's deciding. Here we are in the valley of decision. Multitude, multitudes in the valley of decision. And which way will we go? This is Moses gathering us, well, Moses prophesying and then Joshua doing it, gathering the house of Israel to the valley between Ebal and Gerizim. Remember that scene from last year? Six tribes on one mountain, six tribes on the other, shouting back and forth at each other, blessings from one direction and curses from the other. To make it crystal clear the choice that was being presented for the people in the valley in between. Where do you want to go? Which mountain do you want to climb? A mount of beatitudes, blessedness, or a mount of condemnation, curses? Choice is yours. Agency is honored either way. But what the book of Revelation does, perhaps more powerfully than any other book of Scripture, again, apocalyptic literature is steeped in dualism. There's no middle ground anymore. It's pick a side and dive in the trenches, okay? It is light versus darkness, and there's no, there's no dawn or dusk. It is high noon or midnight. We are juxtaposing truth and error, good and evil, forcing the decision upon us all. Do you remember that statement that Joseph Smith said about the book of Revelation? That it was the plainest book that God ever caused to be written? And how unfair that feels? Like, what, what may be easy for you to understand, and yet remember what we said the very first week. It wasn't easy for Joseph to understand. That's why he kept asking God questions about his symbols, and we got the whole revelation in section 77 of the Doctrine and Covenants. So what did you mean by that? This, to me, is one of the best contributions Uncle Mike's book on the book of Revelation makes, and it's in clarifying that statement from the prophet Joseph. It's not the symbolism in Revelation that is plain. It is the choice that symbolism presents to us. In other words, what is plain about Revelation is the choice it offers to its readers, the choice between good and evil. Let me make good look as good as good can get. And let me paint evil in the most horrific hues I can think of let me put them side by side over and over and juxtapose the choices so you are forced to choose between them. And if you can see what John is portraying, then the choice before us is crystal clear. I'm going to choose God. I refuse to choose evil. As a parting gift... <laughs> as a master chart, a chart to end all charts, here are some of the juxtapositions of the book of Revelation. And side by side, we are choosing between Satan on one side and the Savior on the other. Would you prefer the beast or the lamb? The mother of harlots or the bride of Christ? The merchant city or the new Jerusalem? 
the supper of the great God, or the marriage feast of the Lamb? Do you want the frogs of deceit, or the sword of truth? Something's coming out of a mouth, one way or the other. Do you want the waters of chaos, or the sea of glass? The pale horse of death and hell, or the white horse, whose rider is named Faithful and True? Would you prefer the locusts of war or the leaves of peace that come from the tree of life? Would you prefer to follow the false prophet or the true prophets who were slain and rose again? The mark of the beast or the seal of the father, which is on your forehead? The treading of the grapes of wrath or the harvest of the whitening fields, which lies in your future? Do you prefer the stars that were dragged down in the dragon's tail or the stars that were held up in the Lord's right hand? Are you gravitating more toward the bottomless pit or the great white throne? Do you opt for silence in heaven or the singing of the new song? Would you rather have earthquakes in diverse places or build upon twelve solid foundations? As Elder Maxwell said, do you want Armageddon or Adam on Diamon? The closed cage of Babylon or the open gates of Zion? And when all is said and done, will we cry, alas, alas, or sing, alleluia, alleluia? That is the choice John presents to each of us. And the rest of our lives will be spent answering that question. No man can serve two masters, but we're all serving one or the other in all that we do. Now I know in some ways I'm preaching to the choir. Because here you are at the end of a long lesson, at the end of a long year. And yet can I simply express to you my gratitude for the time we've been able to spend together. I'm amazed that you have wanted to read word by word and verse by verse as we've gone through this incredible book of Scripture. Not just the last month in Revelation, but the last year in the New Testament. It has been a privilege to join you, to get to know many of you, to rejoice in your joys and to mourn with you in your sorrows. So many of you who are wrestling with matters of faith and doubt or wrestling with matters of life and death both physically and spiritually I pray that the Holy Ghost may reach into your heart and your home and grant you grace I pray that all of us can come to know the Savior closely enough and intimately enough to exercise life-saving faith in Him I testify of his all-sufficient grace, of his abundant love, of his desire to be with us as we navigate the pages of revelation in our own lives. There's a part of me, and I'm sure a part of you, that wants to stand right alongside John when the Lord says, Behold, I come quickly. And we just want to cry out, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. I don't know how long we can do this. I don't know how, how long we can keep it up. 
But we're trying. We're striving to live with faith and diligence and patience in the meantime. We're striving to be valiant servants and faithful saints so we can prepare the earth for thy glorious return. I testify that he will. And I pray that we may be found watching and ready for a wedding feast unlike anything we've ever experienced. I testify of Jesus. I love him. I know you do too. And in that shared love of the Lord, may we rejoice, may we lift where we stand, and may we prepare the world for his coming. I testify of that and offer you my faith and my love for him. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.